Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. All righty, paper-wise this morning, the shoddy treatment of Debenham staff, uh, not just by Debenhams, but they also say by the government, and also they're very critical of Micheál Martin. That's a front page on many of the papers today, certainly the echo of the headline, shoddy treatment. The Taoiseach Micheál Martin been, has, been, has branded the treatment of striking Debenham staff as shabby, shoddy, and unacceptable. There ain't much they can do about it, uh, the government they're saying. But uh, the workers both in Dublin and, more importantly, here in Cork, uh, who took possession to some extent of the inside uh, of Debenhams in Cork and Dublin, although they were arrested in Dublin, but not in Cork, dominates all of the papers this morning. So they're certainly getting the coverage that they deserve. Uh, Michal Martin has gone so far as to criticise Debenhams and the shoddy treatment. They've now withdrawn, they ex- arrested six ex-employees in Dublin, uh, the Gardaí for breaking an entry around about a quarter to seven yesterday morning through the Henry Street window. Uh, the workers in Cork are... Jimmy O'Hara is heading to the workers at uh, Debenhams again in Cork this morning. I hope to get an opportunity to have a chat with them. Now, COVID-19 obviously makes many of the papers as well. You know, uh, actually I got an email in saying, Neil, it's very clear that the same mums who are congregating outside school gates gossiping and not respecting social distancing are the same ones who are stirring all of the bull uh, on the classes in the WhatsApp groups about COVID. So what the point here is, Liam is saying, would you ever stop gossiping at the school gates? Um, you have to comply by the rules, so get on with it and shove back from the gates and stop gossiping. But the issue regarding Eglantine uh, rolls on because principals aren't all that happy uh, with the way they were told or indeed the reaction from the school, the school of Reed Eglantine and Douglas uh, because the parents say they've been told little or nothing uh, and not everybody was sent home. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, the school in response is saying, we have followed all of the pro- protocols that we're supposed to follow. Child got COVID-19, parents in the class were uh, notified, those around the child were sent home. Now, I thought that all of the class would have been sent home, but apparently not. Now, um, it's uh, beer day, the 21st. So they're having a kind of a 21st birthday, if you like, if you think of it that way. The pubs, when they get to open on Monday week, they call them wet pubs, September 21st, even though not everybody's all that happy with it because there was, I think, 307 positive cases reported yesterday. So um, the real threat now is coming out of Dublin and out of Limerick. That's why the Independent this morning are saying that there could well be restrictions in the capital and also in Limerick. Like the Mail is saying the same. Pubs open in uh, a week's time or so, but, well, maybe 10 days, but restrictions for Dublin and Limerick are very likely. So they're talking about some kind of lockdown within Dublin and Limerick. If we keep getting numbers like yesterday's 307, do you follow me? So the Red Tops this morning said tears for beers. Publicans can resume trading 21st September. And this morning, uh, the Sun says tears for cheers. Uh, Ryanair say they're going to shut Cork and Shannon across the winter. It's not as if a whole lot of people are flying. But the problem is if you close something, it's always very hard to reopen it again or restart it again. Isn't it true? So Ryanair staff in Cork and Shannon were told by their boss yesterday uh, that both bases will close down for the winter unless the government does something about quarantine restrictions and green lists and having to go into quarantine and isolation for the fortnight and stuff like that. That makes many of the papers today. But other people can Continue to fly, regardless of the type of job that they might have. And the second Falter Ireland board member has now resigned because she travelled to her holiday home in Marbella uh, when really none of us were travelling. And certainly uh, nobody 
from Fáilte Ireland should have been travelling from the point of view of the optics. So uh, Cantor Martin, the tourism minister, has accepted the resignation of the former Primark executive and Fáilte Ireland board member, Breege O'Donoghue. So she's the second and follows uh, Michael Cawley uh, to the subs bench. Not even the subs bench, I suppose, gets the red card totally. Papers also talk today in the Echo about the amount of money that's being spent on Leaside on methadone, the cost of operating the methadone program now uh, since 2017 has cost one just under one and a half million euro. If you're a tech head and you're chasing the latest Apple upgrades, I hope you have the dash for it. There's another one on the way. In fact, there are several choices of the new iPhone 12, apparently, which Apple are going to reveal via a live stream on September 15th. So what'll that knock you back? A new iPhone 12. will certainly be 800 bucks, will it, all day long? And probably be a swanky one or a posh one, a grand or 1200. And then, um, I love the lists of stuff that make the papers today. One of them has to do with the things we put off with regards to home improvement and chores. Uh, they list the top things to do, like the to-do list that we never get to. And in some cases, that to-do list list takes five years before you get to it. And they, they have the top ten here on the star this morning. Number one, painting the walls and ceilings. Get someone in. Number two, garden revamp. Get someone in. Number three, redecorating the living room. Number four, redecorating the bedroom. Wouldn't that be painting walls and ceilings? Repainting the shed. Flooring, getting new homeware, <laughs> running out of forks and knives. Pass me that fucking knife. Uh, getting a new bathroom. Oh, you got to. I mean, you do. Um, anybody still got those salmony pink ones in there from the 1970s? Uh, getting new cushions, must have. And getting a new kitchen. I mean, there wouldn't be change out of a hundred grand, grand in that. And there's another one which I will come back to this morning because I want to give it a bit more air. People's last meals before they died. Now, some of them were execution meals, like the likes of Ted Bundy. Apparently, when he was on death row for his last, last meal, they put in front of him steak, eggs, hash browns, toast with butter, jelly, juice, coffee and milk. Before they executed him in 1989, he refused to eat any of it. I suppose there were other things on his mind. But... I love these kind of stories. Like apparently Hitler, his last meal was pasta with a light tomato sauce. Michael Jackson um, had chicken breast with spinach salad. Now, a lot of these fellas didn't know that it was going to be their last meal. They died tragically. Like, for instance, I saw one there earlier on this morning that spoke of poor old James Dean. Remember, he crashed his Porsche in 1955. But just before that, he stopped at a roadside diner and he had a slice of apple pie and a glass of milk. Ah... James Dean must have been the nicest guy if he stops off for apple pie. I mean, you couldn't find any badness in someone who has a slice of apple pie. Saddam Hussein had boiled chicken and rice. Rasputin the Mad Monk had Madeira wine, honey cakes, black bread and Russian hors d'oeuvres. But I love this one um, uh, because, where is it? Oh yeah, Frank Sinatra, his last meal uh, in 1998 at the age of 82, a grilled cheese sandwich. There ain't nothing like a grilled cheese sandwich. This is not. Princess Dan- Diana lived up to her princess status for her last meal in the Ritz before she died in that crash was Dover sole, vegetables tempura, vegetables and batter, and a mushroom and asparagus omelette. She was hungry that night. Marilyn Monroe finally had stuffed mushrooms and meatballs. 
they kind of go together, don't they? And she washed it all down, as Marilyn would do, with Dom Perignon champagne, and then she went and died. The Neil Prenderville Show. With Tesco. Save time and shop online. Simply log on to tesco.ie. There's loads more of those, actually. James Galdonfini from, uh, of course, the hit show The Sopranos had a double order of fried king prawns and a plate of foie gras. I'd say it's the foie gras killed them. A heart attack got him, and Foy Graff would do that too if you have too much of it. Anyway, lines open at 1850-104-106. You can text 0868-104-106. I hope to touch base with Debenhams this morning. Didn't get to it yesterday. We had other matters on air yesterday. And again this morning, can I say, um, and I, I will be spending more time this morning reading texts and emails. Of that, I can assure you. Um, mind you, I am told that some nurses don't want to go to work now because of my show. Uh, Tina says, I work with the elderly people and have done, for, done so for many years. I'm not a nurse, but I have to say I find it very upsetting that nurses are being slated on your radio program. They're extremely hardworking and a lot of time understaffed through no fault of their own. It is a job not for the faint-hearted or cold-hearted. Yes, I'm sure patients have to wait to be attended to. There's not one nurse to one patient. They have made so many sacrifices, nurses, during this pandemic. They are true heroes. We have all met the one nurse who isn't very nice, but to say 99% are horrible is a disgrace. Did these people make a complaint while in hospital? And how would a relative have seen anything going on in a ward when there's no visitors allowed? There are now nurses who do not, do not even want to go to work after listening to your show. There are truly some really ungrateful, miserable people out there. You need to balance your show for fairness. Come here, I'm all for balance. And if there are people out there who have kind and happy things and nice things to say about our health system, I certainly would get them on the air. And I did get a few of those calls and texts. Can I just say, um, I think it's a horrible thing to call anybody who's telling a story on the treatment of their loved one ungrateful, miserable people. And to answer your other question here, how would they know what's going on because of lockdown? Many of the calls and emails and texts that I have are from way before lockdown. Some of the stories that I'm telling are 10 and 15 years old. Um and that's just one example of people who aren't necessarily very happy with the coverage. I would say one thing, uh, for the nurses and the medics and people in healthcare who are doing a great job, keep doing a great job. We appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you. For those that fell out of love with the job, either fall back in love with it or get out of it. For the, those that are coasting and aren't working harder, hard, get out or start working harder. But for those that are really working and doing a super job, thank you. For the rest, and these are the ones that people are critical of, um, you know, you need to get your act together. Uh, firstly, may I say I'm a staff nurse in the CUH. and I'm appalled at the experience of people's relatives in CUH. Some of the treatment was inexcusable and inhumane, as documented on your program. I do think, though, that uh, letting people vent without context is a rather dangerous road to go down. There are two sides to every story. CUH is an acute hospital and the busiest A&E in the country. Several times you and your callers mentioned the geriatric wards. To the best of my knowledge, there isn't a specific geriatric ward. What has happened is the majority of medical and surgical events occur in older age groups. It's true in every country. Ireland doesn't have a good track record with community care and supporting people once ready for discharge uh, and need additional support at home. So you end up with people being in overly long, being in hospital overly long, deteriorating all the while due to problems highlighted by your callers. Um, most of your callers mentioned personal care lacking and specifically toileting. Everyone expects staff at the end of every bed 
very soon once the toilet request is made. But that is just not possible. We all have had elderly parents too and would not wish to cause distress by keeping them waiting. But I can tell you it is simply not possible. I can count hundreds of times I ask patients to please hold on while I finish with someone else. We cover multiple rooms and tasks with care assistants trying to satisfy multiple requests. Um, I can't read out all of this email. It's just way too long. The gist of it is some time is spent documenting because you rarely get time to give the actual care. It's farcical. But HICWA visits, um, the HICWA visit documentation is all they actually care about. So that she's saying that nurses have to do all of this documentation and paperwork because that's what HICWA want to see. We have we do have lots of nurses and care assistants for whom English isn't their first language. We're very lucky to have them, um, as many Irish won't work in these awful conditions. But often, as the maybe one or two Irish nurses on duty, all of the queries come to us because we're Irish we speak English. So you get overloaded with everything because the other nurse's confidence to speak English may be low. Oh my God, Like, why would you have people working in acute scenarios who can't speak English? Anyway, uh, then they realize it's actually nicer not dealing with complaints and queries and get used then to taking a back seat, the nursing staff that don't speak English. People ask why go into nursing if you're not happy with the work. But honestly, caring for elderly clients uh, isn't a lot of staff's first choice as one caller pointed out. And yes, we are instructed by HICWA to call them clients now. Uh, none of this is an excuse for rude and disinterested staff. Uh, I'm just trying to explain to callers some of the reasons why staff get burnt out, disillusioned, and clearly sound like they hate their job. As for some of the particular complaints, it's really impossible to satisfy everyone. One caller complained of a man next to their relative constantly banging the locker, disturbing their conversation. Um, that's as much as I'm going to read of that because it goes on and on and on for pages. If I get an opportunity, I'll come back to it again throughout the course of the morning. But there are many more. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to them. I'll get, I'll get straight to phone lines now and see how we go. I'll tell you what I will do, right? Um, I will go straight downtown uh, and check in with Debenhams because if I don't do it now, I'll run out of time throughout the course of the morning as I did yesterday morning. So Madeline Whelan standing by. Madeline, good morning. Morning, Neil. Uh, I know you've been all over the media yesterday um, and all over the newspapers again this morning, you and also your colleagues in, in Dublin, some of whom were arrested. You went into Debenhams through a window. Is it Was it in the early hours yesterday morning? I personally didn't go in, Neil. Um, no, I'm, when I say you, the workers. Or as the staff members. Yes, we did. Through a, uh, they went through yesterday morning, just after six o'clock. Okay, how many went in? Eight. What kind of a night had they? Well, they were asleep and they were as sleeping as they could, but there was um, an alarm went off suddenly at uh, 4.30 this morning for about 30 or 40 seconds just to wake them up. So there was no more sleep after 4.30 this morning then. You think somebody intentionally turned it on? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, were there, were there, was there restrictions as well with regards to them trying to get food? Yes, there was. There was seven and a half hours of a standoff yesterday trying to get food into them. Basic milk, I asked for a half of 12. Could I get some milk into them? Because they had basic foods with them. And they were asked that yesterday morning by the guards. And they told the guards they had basic foods for the next couple of days. But they didn't have milk. And I asked for half of 12 yesterday, could they get milk? And I was told that they'd have to get on to the top people in KPMG for that to be answered. I asked again at four o'clock, could I get milk and some hot food? And I got the same thing. They'd have to ask up higher up 
And I went back again at 20 to 5 and I said, is there any chance I can get milk and some hot food into them? And I was told they did say they had food with them. I said, yes, they have basic food with them. But at this stage, we would like to get some hot food into them. And they said they'd, I'd have an answer by 5 o'clock. I didn't get an answer until 7 o'clock last night. And I was told I had 20 to 25 minutes to get it in. And I had to do a deal with them that I would move the rest of the picketers from the lane. And Sorry, this line is just absolutely chronic. You did a deal saying what? That I would remove, I would ask the picketers to come away from the lane and come out of the yard and to bring down the shutter on the lane. And they would leave hot food into them at that stage. And did that happen? It did, yes. Okay. Um, And then we had um, KPMG tweeting last night that it was false news and that they actually organised for the food to go in there. They did not organise it. It was actually Scoozies made a donation of the food when I went to Scoozies last night to pay for this. Danny gave me a deal on the food for the Fair play so to him. not organised. Yes. Fair play. Great. How come you guys didn't get arrested? Like the, or sorry, the likes of Valerie and the gang inside. How come they didn't get arrested like they did in Dublin? We have no idea. We've, Valerie did say straight away that when the guardian entered the premises that it was a peaceful protest and that they were only there until Thursday and that um, it was just a, we just wanted to show what we are up against and that we, we would come out again on Thursday for them. Okay, I think so, I've got uh, Valerie here online too. Valerie, good morning. Good morning. And did, the, and did the guards then say, oh, that's fine and you can stay for a period of time, is it? Well, yes, they came in. The, I have to say, the guards have always been very good to us in Cork. So they did come in yesterday. Once I told them, I told them straight away that it was a peaceful protest, that it was only going to be for two and a half days and that we would be walking out on Thursday at one o'clock. They did take our names, obviously, that's OK. They took my telephone number. And uh, we had a bit of a chat just to see how things were going. They were going mad that I had to come to this because they said it shouldn't have to be coming to this and that they were behind us all the way. Right. Okay. because the guards in Dublin arrested your colleagues for trespass and criminal damage. Did they was the difference that they broke in and you went in an open window, is it? Well, I think they might have found the window broken. But yes, our window was open. And then at 20 past four this morning... Somebody, you believe somebody intentionally set the alarm off? Well, it was a bit of a coincidence um, that there was a fire alarm went off yes, this morning just for a couple of seconds, for 30, about 30 or 40 seconds. Uh, we, would have been, we all wouldn't have been asleep anyway because, because there's a security guard in there all the time with us. So there would have been two staying awake. We were doing it in shifts for the night for two people to stay awake at all times so that we can keep an eye on them like they're keeping an eye on us. So the other six then were sleeping. So there were six people woken up then, yes, this morning at 20 past four. And you got the food. And in fairness, Scoozies uh, came up trumps on that. Um, are you confined to a particular area in there? Tell us where you yeah. are. We're in the canteen, the staff canteen. Now, the toilets are just across the way from this, so we can come in uh, to the toilets as well, obviously. But yeah, the staff canteen is where we're confined to. And the deal then that Debenhams was offering, this paltry deal, they have now withdrawn that because of the occupations, have they? They have, but it would have been a no vote anyway. So the fact that they withdraw it, we, it doesn't make any difference to us because we weren't accepting it. And what was that offer? Just recap on it. So what it was is 500,000 was being put into a pot before Christmas. The other 500,000 was going to put into a pot after Christmas. They said then that there would be a 33.3% of the net profit going towards staff. But that would be after everything was paid. So there wouldn't be much left. Um, so that really means that so 10, 10, 10 million is worth your two weeks statutory redundancy. 
five million is one week's statutory redundancy and one million is literally one day for every year you worked. So what do you think the staff would be coming out with? Uh, a day, a week, a fortnight, two days, two weeks a year? Well, what? Obviously, so they, with the statute, so they would have got two weeks plus one day for every year they worked. So if they worked for 14 years, they'd get 14 days extra. Oh, for God's sake. So that's thing. atrocious. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's atrocious. Yeah. Like for my, 24, for my 24 years, I'd get 24 days extra. Good God, you that's know? the worst yeah. I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. And then yeah. they think that they think they're being smart by pulling it, but it wouldn't have been voted in. Nobody wants that. But no, not for a hundred well, today, one hundred and fifty-three days, been out in all weather, red red alerts the whole lot, and to offer us that. So why don't no. you do a Vita Cortex on it and stay in there? Because I keep my promises. And when I spoke to the guards yesterday, I told them that I would be out on Thursday. And so we will come out on Thursday. I have a good relationship with them. I even had one of the guards that I would always be in contact with texting me this morning to make sure we were okay. Okay. Now, Michal Martin is fair play. Michal Martin has come out and criticised Debenham. He's Debenham. He's described it shoddy, um, shabby and unacceptable. What do you say to him? It's no, words are no good. We want action. Like he's, he's very good at coming out and saying all those kind of things, saying that the way we're treated is very bad. That's, that words have absolutely nothing to do with it now at this stage. They have to sit around the table and the uh, SSs have to be in there with them. Shop stewards. Shop stewards, yes. Because he said, he said that I salute the courage and the perseverance of the workers. I have nothing but admiration for them. But you can't lodge that in your bank account like... Exactly, exactly. So, like, come Christmas, we could be still down there and he'll be still telling us that he's looking, he's feeling sorry for us. So what good is that to us? Okay. It's what now, 153 days. days? Yeah. And when you come out on Thursday, what's the next move? And then we'll have to get together and get another plan and start talking, you know, but we're not giving up. Um, like we done, this is a session. It can only get bigger after this. Okay, we'll stay in touch with you. All right, appreciate you taking okay. the call. Thanks, Thanks for that. Please. Thank you, Thank Valerie. You. Thank you, Madeline, ex-Debenham's employees. One sitting in and other, the other doing the, the footwork on the outside. Lines open at 1-850-104-106. You can text 086-8104-106. Back after the break. Stand by, Anne. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at Neil Red FM. 104 to 106 Red FM. I jumped to Debenhams there while reading out some of the responses from a particular CUH nurse. She says, as uh, so it goes every night and every day, impossible choices, poor conditions, irate relatives. On top of that, PPE we wear in overly warm wards. And you wonder why we're leaving nursing in droves? One caller suggested you got nothing sorted until she screamed at the staff. I understand the frustration, but honestly, thinking it's acceptable to scream at people trying to work is not okay. Uh, That just makes me avoid that bedside if I can help it. Who wants to be screamed at? Uh, More the the solution really is more less nurses and more care assistants. Um, The caller who sarcastically mentioned staff gazing at the board. Please, don't call it chatting or gazing at the board. It's a necessary handover of information from one shift to the next. Uh, and then, um, the, it's quite lengthy. That's, uh, 
Most of the care on personal, uh, most of the care is personal and not clinical and doesn't need nursing staff, but more care assistance. I am glad you pointed out that hygiene and space issues uh, are not necessarily the nurse's fault. I've had people shouting at me that the f- about the food in the canteen, uh, shouting at me about the closing time of Tesco, shouting at me about parking charges and everything in between. Please don't give up my details. I'll be joining the long queue to jump ship soon. But in the meantime, I don't wish to be identified. So that's a quite lengthy response from a nurse. And there are others from nurses, but also from patients and family members of patients. Amongst them, uh, Anne. Anne, good morning. Good morning, Neil. You, you, worked, you worked with the elderly. Um, 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 and and, and, and also, is. you're now a retired nurse, are you? Yeah. I, first of all, thanks for having me on your show. And for the last two mornings, Neil, I can't believe what's going on at this day and age. I am so upset. I don't have anybody in there, but I can really relate to people being treated like that. It's unbelievable. So um, I'm having a rant now here because... Nurses are starting to get on board now. Nurses should be encouraged, encouraging people to put in complaints, Neil. When I worked in England, we always made sure our our patients were treated with the highest respect and dignity and they were encouraged to complain. Not these nurses coming on board now on your show and lacing you for for naming Oh, listen, I don't, that, that's water off a duck's back to me. I'm here to do my job like they're no, to do but theirs. But the, the cheek of them to do that, if they have a conscience and they're doing their job, they'd be glad of an investigation. Um, not if the, not if the complaints are about the attitude of some of the nursing staff. Not some. all. And again, let no. me say, for those that are doing a great job, well done. Yeah. Neil, you can't tar everybody with the same brush. But as a nurse in charge of a ward, you should be able to deal with your staff and make sure people are treated properly. Now, for instance, you get management walking around, they'll come to the desk, oh yeah, good morning, everything okay. How many of that management go in and actually interview people? Interview who? Patients, you mean? Interview patients and say, have you any complaints? You know, this is what should be happening. Don't ask somebody if they have a complaint. They'll always complain about something. Ask them, is everything okay? Yeah, is everything okay? Because with the patient's character, you're advised to complain. And these people now that are ringing in, and I feel so sorry for them, Neil, and especially the people in there that have no voice or no relatives to, to stand up for them. What if you were a nurse, though, as this lengthy email says from a nurse, where you have to constantly fill in documentation, paperwork, catalogue everything, because HICWA want paperwork when they do their visits and their spot checks. They care more about paperwork than care, the nurses say. That's why they're constantly updating, constantly documenting everything. And the more time they spend on it, the nurses say the less time they can spend on the wards. Yeah, that's true. I've dealt with HICPA. And, but they're all about, their priority is the patient care. You have to document everything because there has to be a paper trail, Neil. If there is a complaint, there has to be a paper trail. 
Yeah, but you don't want nursing staff or, or, or healthcare staff bogged down in paperwork. That's not why they're there. Well, these days, it's all about paper trail because people are taking people to court and you have to have paper trails. So I agree with that, that the nurses are bogged down with paperwork. Okay. But they're in charge of that ward and they should be allocating care staff. And I know now, Neil, it's a different scenario of geriatric care and geriatric people in a hospital setting. You know, because... Um, when when you're in a hospital setting, it's completely different. But if I was on that ward and I was fully competent that I gave the care to the best of my ability, I'd welcome complaints. Mm-hmm. Those things would be done and more staff would be put on the wards. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, some people say that there's staff coming from other wards, young student nurses. I mean... They just don't want to be there, Neil. No, she, sa- she says. Uh, she says um, we have lots of nurses and care assistants for whom English isn't their first language. Uh, those that speak English then get overloaded with everything because those whose English is weak don't have the confidence to speak it, uh, and well, they t- and they tend then to take a back seat. But surely those in care of the elderly whose language is English should speak English. Butcher, for God's sake, Ian, Ari, Neil, you're getting this in all walks of life. You go into a restaurant and sometimes they can't even understand you. That's that's management's problem. They shouldn't be employing people that can converse with, especially the elderly. Oh, my God. Well, certainly not in geriatric care because elderly people want to be able to speak to somebody who can understand them. Exactly. So this is opening. I mean, this is showing the most vulnerable yeah. people in our society, and they should be respect, treated with respect, dignity, and empathy. Okay. They're at the end of their life. Okay. okay. And imagine being in a hospital setting where they're frightened. Okay. Hold on there a second. Hold, hold on, if you will, John. Go ahead, my friend. How are you doing? Listen, right. I'm listening away there for the last couple of days, like Neil, you know, and. Will these people at least show some respect for people that walk around the front line? Nobody saw during the reception the suicides, the family breakups, the alcoholism of these people, right? No, the politicians, again, if it's down to money, it's down to money. Wait a second there. You spoke there about alcohol, suicide and family breakup of frontline workers, is it? People have no idea, Neil. And to you know something, I'm going to say it. I'm a victim of it myself, Neil. I had a horrendous breakdown from working at the front line, right? Right. What I've seen, my friends, nobody should see. In a hospital setting, is, is it? What's that, Neil? In a hospital setting, is it? No, 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 Neil. Just walking around the park with the public. We're, like, we're having to go to nurses here now again. Like, and, like <sighs> will they just show some respect? We right. all know they're burnt out, Neil. They're burnt out from the recession in the first place. They had no money. I was, I was full-time in the taxis, Neil. And I did more deals bringing cops and nurses to shag them up during the recession because they had no money. Right? If they're going to attack anybody, attack the bloody politicians. So you did a deal on the fair because they were short of it to get to work? I did, Neil. Good I God. Had to bring a cop to, I had to bring a cop to court one night where you had no deals, Neil. This was at four o'clock in the morning in the taxi when I was full time. Right? He was up and down the village and I saw him and I was like, Jesus, what's that? Two, two, two hours he was walking around the village where I was working. And eventually he came up to me and he told me who he was and all he had was 20 quid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, look, 
I haven't even got, I'm hoping to get a ton of job even into town so I can get a ton of diesel. Yeah. And I said, look, give me the 20, I'll throw the 20 into the diesel. That'll get me stuff that does no work. And now. you brought the guard to work. Okay. Home. Only. Home, okay, okay. And it was Home the same with the nurses. And I'm sure taxi drivers, other taxi drivers did it there. But there's taxi. nobody actually having a go. But like, it's it's more to do with the treatment of elderly people. Um, Neil, I know that. I do. I understand that. I've been through all that situation. I've been through the psychiatric services for about 20 years because I'm battling bipolar, trying to stay alive. I, 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 and I hope that that's, I hope you win that out in fairness to you. But I'm just, at the moment, Neil. I got some great help by friends. No, financially, I don't care about money anymore. Oh, I yeah. I do a bit I do a bit of part time down on the taxi Neil and it is a pleasure. I don't care who I pick up, what I pick up, addicts, everything. People are people to me, why? But to go back to your situation with the nurses, Neil. We know all this is going on now. It's cheaper, it's dearer to bring in an agency nurse than to take someone on full time. When they bring in the nurses into their third and fourth year, I don't even think they get paid. Oh I know I know that. But I know I understand all of that. I understand that nurses want more pay and, and the conditions aren't the greatest and the hospital structure is a disaster. But are people not entitled to tell the story of how their loved ones were treated or how they were treated themselves? Neil, I know that system I worked in hospitality for years and in hospitals. I know the crack. Unfortunately, like some of the state agencies, you have two out of five people doing the work and you three hanging around. Yeah. So people are so, so allow people to complain about the ones that are hanging around. Absolutely, bring in a system like that because if that's the way the country is going to keep running, we might as well just turn the lights off and walk away from the place, like because there's no accountability for nothing on this side. Okay, hold on, if, hold on, if you want, Caroline. Yes, hi, Neil. Thanks for holding. Go ahead. Yeah, I suppose really with my dad, um, with him being inside in hospital and everything. I mean, like there was an awful lot of occasions there were where my dad was was just left there. Basically, I mean, he, he was, there was, I mean, I one night myself and my mum went in and he had curtains around him. And um, when we went in, he was asleep. And um, I had to call one of the nurses because my dad is always awake when we go up. He's always talking to everybody. And um, basically, um, we found out that he had a virus. And nobody had looked in onto him. Nobody had done anything. I mean, like, it's just crazy what's going on above. In you the said that he went, he walked into the CUH, but came out of it in a wheelchair. Is that right? He did. He did. Yeah. At the very beginning, he went into the, into the CUH and um, he had an awful lot of water inside in his system. And basically they had to drain it out. And they drained out so much that um, they basically damaged the nerves in his legs. And he couldn't walk properly anymore. He basically was in a wheelchair. But prior to that, there was, when we went in one night, there was water on the floor. Um, his bandages were hanging down his legs. They were all covered in water. We had to call the nurse again and ask her, could she change the bandages while we cleaned up the floor? Yeah, so you got stuck in and helped. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I just feel that these things shouldn't have been going on. Like, they should have been watching my dad. They should have seen the bandages hanging down his legs. They should have seen the water on the floor. They, I mean, like, my mum and myself shouldn't have been left to do stuff like that. We didn't mind doing it. But it's, it's their job to do it. Did a patient ask you to bring him to the toilet? Yes. That was in the older part of the, the hospital. Um, he Now, basically, we spent a, quite a lot of hours there with my dad. So the first time um, there was like a male nurse that came in and he brought him to the toilet. But I mean, the old man was saying to him, can you slow down, you're hurting me. And um, he kept on, he just told him to, to shut up. And I was there to my 
Oh, oh just, just, God. just. Okay, just hold on there one second. I'll come back to you in two seconds. I just want to sort out the phone lines here because I need to drop one and hold on to you. So let me just do that if I can here and sort myself out. Okay, I've lost that call. My apologies. I'll come back to Caroline in a few minutes' time. Okay. Um, I'll just finish with Anne, come back to Caroline. Thank you, John. I'm going to let you go. Yeah, finish up there, Anne. Yeah, Yeah, go on. (laughs) You already dropped me. No. No, listen, Neil, I was just saying that um, I'm I'm delighted that this has been aired and I want to know if people know their rights about uh, how they go about complaining. You don't complain to the... Well, you do complain to the staff of ward initially... But there is um, no, you're right, the Irish Hospital uh, Complaints Charter. So people need to be putting their complaints in writing and times and dates if possible. So if they know, uh, the management know what staff are on duty. Okay. Hello? Yeah, good points. Well made. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. You can complain and there's ways to do it. Caroline, so I was just talking to you there about um, some man who asked you to bring him to the loo because he was being manhandled by the male nurse who was bringing him, is it? He was, yeah. He was just very rough with him. You know, he wasn't he wasn't compassionate at all. He was just grabbing him and pulling him along and telling him to hurry on a bit faster. And the old man was saying, I can't, I'm not able, I'm not able. And then eventually then he got there and he went into the toilet and everything. And then about an hour or two later then, he needed to go again and he didn't call for any nurse. He actually asked me would I help him in? And I said no problem at all. Of course I would. And I could see he was struggling to get out of the bed. You know, they just needed time. You know, these nurses are coming in and everything's a rush, 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 rush. Because they say that they've got two or three other wards that they're rushing to and from. That's what the nurse said here in the email. Quite honest, if they were under so much pressure they'd be running around the place. All of these nurses aren't running around the place. They're all taking their time. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's, 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 it's just crazy okay. what's going on about that. Okay, and the man across from your dad who was given his dinner, another elderly oh, gentleman. Yes. This, this was absolutely horrific. Now, prior to that as well, too, I mean, I with my dad and my sister and myself were there this day and we went in and up on top of my dad's table there was, you know, those yellow containers that they use for the disposables of the needles and stuff? Yes. That was up on top of my dad's table and there was blood up on top of my dad's table and it was left there. Right. It was literally left there. And I called the nurse and I asked her, would she mind, um, you know, taking away the disposable container and to wipe up the blood that was on the on his, on tray. his table. Yeah. His tray. Yeah. And um, I, I, I was absolutely shocked when I saw what she did. She got a piece of tissue, a bit of water, came over, gave it a wipe, took away the container and that was it. I was there. Are you joking? There me? seems to be and serious was, hygiene issues within our yes, hospitals. Okay. This is what I'm saying. There, yeah. There's, I mean, like, and I, I literally had to go away and get tissue for my dad's safety. And I had to get disinfectant and I literally disinfected all down his table and everything. And I was just there to myself, Jesus, good Lord. But anyway, across from my dad then, then there was uh, um, an old man and um, he was just being given his dinner as we came in. And um, I noticed that he wasn't touching it or anything like that. And um, about a half an hour then, his wife came in and um, she kind of asked him a few questions. She was looking for his pyjamas and everything. And she said to him that um, that he hadn't, didn't anybody give you, a, you know, feed your dinner. And um, that was going anyway. So all of a sudden then a nurse came in and she gave out to the nurse. She says, um, she says, there's somebody supposed to be feeding my husband. She said, why isn't there somebody feeding his, my husband? He's got cataracts in his eyes. 
he can't see properly and he had no use of his hands. And now, was there uh, any way that she, as a retired nurse, could have been there at the designated time to feed him? Do you know what I mean? Well, like, like sometimes I, I you kind of have to use your I head. Like, do you yes. want nurses sitting down feeding people now? Well, I mean, like, surely there is somebody there because, I mean, like, I know when my dad had the virus, there was somebody sitting beside my dad's bed because he he couldn't leave the bed because if he did, he'd fall over because okay. he hadn't used his bed. No, I'm, I'm only, raise, I'm only raising a question. I'm not I know what you're saying, yeah. There, 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 there's always somebody there. Do you know what I'm saying? And like I said, these these nurses weren't under pressure. Like there was enough of them behind the counter, that behind their. You bed. say there was enough of them behind the counter to show that they didn't give a damn whether he ate or not. Basically, yes. Okay. And like and like this lady said to me, I, I'm like we were actually talking to her afterwards because I told her my situation, what happened with my dad when I came in, and then she was just telling me about what she's been going through and everything. And she just said it's an absolute disgrace. She said. She wrote it all down on paper for them to know about her husband, about what he can and can't have. This guy was actually a diabetic. And when she opened, when she took off the lid of his dinner, what was in his plate, he was not supposed to have at all. And it was all in his notes that he was not supposed to eat. And your dad was diabetic and he was getting... Custard cream, yes. buns and donuts and yes, jam slices. Yes, was. Now, this was actually before my dad had the bad fall and everything accelerated and before he got the viruses and everything. Like, he was going into kind of like stabilise his diabetes and his high blood pressure and, and bits and pieces like that. But yeah, for his, his supper, um, because myself and my mum and my sister would be in there, and um, he was given a cup of tea and um, he had a, um, a custard slice. I was absolutely shocked. And then another day, then he had um, a donut slice, you know, with the jam and the cream. And, and he was in there to stabilise diabetes? Yes. Mother he was God. in there to stabilise. Okay. And I actually brought it to the nurse's attention. And I didn't want to embarrass my dad because, to be quite honest with you, my dad loved that kind of food. And that's why he was in the situation he was he in. He was staying but quiet about it. Yeah. Exactly. I just didn't want to embarrass him by saying, would you okay. mind please taking that away? Do you know what I'm saying? Okay. Let but me... I mean, like, he went through, he went through horrific times inside. And like I said... He had two viruses and everything. He had only 24 hours to live after one of the viruses. And he got all of this inside in the hospitals. And it's because the, the hospitals are run very badly. I mean, like, when you go into certain areas in a hospital, the smell of urine would knock you out. It's disgusting. Do you know what? It's going to be that way. Yeah. Oh, my God. So the hygiene and the staff, I'm lost for words, the worst I've ever and seen and experienced. Don't get me wrong, Neil. I'm not saying all the staff, because there, uh, there was a few of them who were absolutely fantastic to my dad. I'm not saying that all of them, but there was a pretty big... I mean, like, if I was going to do a percentage on it, I would say 80% were absolute disaster. Well, that's very high. That's very high. It is. That's what I'm saying. Okay, Caroline, I'm going to keep moving. Thank you for your contribution, your email, and for coming on air. 80% bad, 20% good. We've got some more calls, texts, and emails, and more responses from nurses after the break. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 1850-104-106. Red FM. I'm going to be horrified at some of the calls, texts, and emails after 10, I can tell you, but a student nurse got in touch to say, I hope you're keeping well. I'm writing to you because I'm disgusted with the calls that were coming into you over the last couple of 
of days about uh, nurses in the CUH. It's not just about nurses, it's about everything, except that the nurses aren't responsible for the cleaning, so it's about that as well. Uh, it's about all aspects of healthcare for the elderly, not just nurses. Anyway, as a student nurse who has worked in many of the Cork hospitals and also Kerry, I feel the nurses in CUH were given an awful doing. I've worked in the CUH myself and I think the nurses are outstanding. People feel that when their family goes into hospital that they don't have to look after the family members anymore themselves. People give out about nurses not taking their family member to the bathroom. Why can't the family member take them to the bathroom while they're there? If they're not happy, well, don't bother returning to CUH for medical care. Go private. They all have nothing else to be doing, only ringing in, complaining to you. I really do feel so bad for the people that rang in with bad experiences. However, you cannot paint every nurse with the same brush. Thankfully, I love my job and really enjoy caring for people of all ages and abilities. I've never written to a radio show before, but this really annoyed me because I've seen and given great care to patients myself in the CUH. Uh, Thank you. Keep me private. Sorry for the rant. Um, I'm with you in many of those aspects of what you're saying, apart from, um, you know, if you don't like it, don't go back, go private. You're assuming that people can afford to go private, particularly elderly people. Uh, listening to your podcast from earlier today, I felt that I had to comment. I'm a contractor to the HSC. Uh, the stories you heard today are absolutely correct. Uh, in the COH and Finbars, I've seen the elderly screaming for attention and receiving none for hours on end. This is a contractor working in the hospitals. Uh, screaming for attention and receiving none for hours on end. On occasion over the years, when I mentioned it to the staff, they would say, ah, it's dementia, and they'd move on. I've seen commodes left unemptied for hours. I could go on and on about what I've witnessed in Cork hospitals over the years. I've never seen outright abuse. It always seems that they are rushed off their feet in the trenches, as it were. But meanwhile, while contracting work upstairs in the offices, I see the admin sitting around enjoying the crack, Laughing and joking. I've seen people on their computers reading up on monsterfans.com, Facebook and some playing solitaire on their computer screens. It's shocking really how many admin actually do very little work. But you've heard all this before, I'm sure. I'm also a contractor to the bonds and the contrast between the two is vast. Please keep my identity private for obvious reasons. That's pretty shocking now to say the least, isn't it? by text to neil at redfm.ie The Neil Prenderville Show With Tesco, save time and shop online. Simply log on to tesco.ie Just on a related matter from earlier this morning the Debenhams, Debenhams sitting team are organising a rally outside the Patrick Street store at 1 o'clock today the rally is being held to demand uh, fresh talks to resolve the dispute the eight workers sitting in had their first night's sleep disrupted as you heard earlier the alarm went off at 20 past 4 and they say intention They figure it was a deliberate ploy. Um, KPMG backed down at 7 o'clock last night, as we heard on air earlier, and allowed food to be set into the occupied store after a wave of protest on social media saying, feed them, let them get food, let them have food. And Danny Boo, inside in Scoozies, uh, provided the necessary and uh, provided the vittles, if you like. So that's 1 o'clock today. Debenhams on Patrick Street. Lines are open at 1850-104-106. You can text 086-8104-106. I'm a qualified healthcare assistant. I'm fully qualified to check blood pressure and temperatures. As a healthcare assistant in Ireland, we are not allowed to use this qualification, though. It would take massive pressure off nurses 
if healthcare assistants were. I worked in CUH as an agency healthcare assistant in the morning. You'd have to report to the manager to see what ward you'd be on. Many times I was sent to wards where I wasn't needed and I'd spend nearly the first hour going to different wards before I could get one that actually needed me. Personally, I didn't enjoy working in CUH. You would help patients have a wash in the morning and then the rest of the day would be spent stocking the storeroom, the bed linen rooms, wiping down equipment used. Uh, There really wasn't the personal level of care, like even having a chat with patients. I was a patient myself in the CUH in 2016. Three weeks after having my baby, I was admitted through A&E. The staff in the A&E were great. I was moved to ward and the nursing manager said my baby was not allowed to come in unless I'm breastfeeding, which I wasn't. When the nurse manager left, the other nurses said my baby could be brought in once she was gone. I found this heartbreaking, and it really affected the bond between me and my baby. She was only three weeks old, and I was kept in there for nine days. Don't give up my details. I still work as a healthcare assistant. Wasn't that very cruel of her to say that to you? But it's interesting. Qualified healthcare assistants uh, can do much of the work uh, that, say, uh, a nurse can do, but they're not allowed to do it here in Ireland. So you spent most of your day just knocking around storerooms and linen rooms and wiping down equipment when you really could have been on the ward, even dealing with geriatric patients who clearly need extra care and attention. And from the last couple of days, from what I can see, they aren't getting it. My mother was in Finbars over 10 years ago. She died there. She had a knee replacement in December, had a stroke soon after, transferred to the CUH and then on to Finbars, uh, where they could do no more for her. Uh, she died in February. My father also died in June of that year. I was so happy to get her into St. Finbar's, the union, as my mother used to call it when she was younger. She said, I never want to end up in the union. Um, And it it was that many years ago. It it really and truly was. It was a poorhouse and it was, um, you know, um, it was many, many different things, uh, including a workhouse aspect to it as well. Um, He wouldn't let me speak about the appalling conditions in there in case they threw her out even though they were really quick and efficient taking her pension pay in Finbars to pay for her time there. I saw some horrendous sights, which I will never, ever get out of my head. Her beautiful face was bruised terribly on one occasion. And when we asked what happened, we couldn't get any answers. No one apparently knew why her face was so bruised. I made an on-spec visit one morning as I was attending a funeral nearby. Came in unannounced. When I came in, my mother was on a hoist, which was used to get her into the bed. She was just hanging there with her face rubbing against a strap. This is why she was suffering from bruising. Her nightdress was all caught up and her lower regions were totally exposed to all for anyone to see who passed in and out of that ward. I sometimes can't sleep with that image of her in my head hanging like that. There are many more horrible stories from that time but just wanted to say, thank God, someone has finally spoken up. If you read this out, don't give up my personal details, but a good job this week. I might not always agree with you, but thank you for this week alone. And that by email to neil at redfm.ie. The other caller um, was in the hospital since Sunday. Anyone who says anything to condemn the nurses should be put down. They are great and beautiful people. And can I say for the third time this morning, for those that are enjoying their work and doing a good job. Thank you. Continue to do so. To those that aren't, though, from the calls that I've been getting, emails and texts, if you don't like your job, get out of it. If you do like your job and you're coasting, buck up and work harder. Uh, Maria, good morning. Good morning. Now, um, you're livid with that student nurse telling people, where was that again? If you don't like it, don't come back. Go private. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I am a private patient. Uh, my, my child was a private patient and it didn't really make much difference how we were treated. You know, um, my mum um, has nursed for 30 years as a staff nurse. My aunts have, I have the greatest respect for them. So as a student yeah. nurse sending an email like that, would you be concerned as to her temperament as a student nurse? This is the type of nurse that we will have if she says things like, ah, they have nothing else to be doing, only ringing you to complain. Yeah, I would. I really would. Because, first of all, I have never been on the radio before. Um, it's only when I heard the story yesterday, it really hit a bell with me. And I just feel like that, why should people be treated like that, especially when they're sick? But it is rather unfair on hardworking nurses and medical staff and frontline staff and people working in hygiene and cleaning and things like that who are going to work to make a difference, I suppose, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean... I'll tell you my own story if you have time. Your son, please do. My own son was in hospital two weeks ago. We were taken to, we we actually went to CUH. We were there for five or six hours. He was taken to a ward. Why was he brought in, may I ask? He was actually screaming in pain. And he's not a child that would, you know, be very kind of delicate. He would be quite sturdy. So when I rang my GP... They sent in, they, we went into the GP first and they sent in a letter into the hospital. In he went then with chronic pain in the abdomen. Okay, carry on. Chronic pain in the abdomen. So we, were, we went in through A&E. We were then put into a children's waiting room. And then eventually when we did see a nurse who was lovely, we were then moved up to the A ward. And there we met two other nurses and it was kind of going on for a while where he was getting no relief. I was getting more and more concerned. And so it I was, was his appendix or something? No, it wasn't. It was actually his lower abdomen, which was, I can't get into it now because it's, it's quite private. But it turned out there was four different issues wrong with the child. However, we were sent home from the COH that night. With Boscobana, I asked I think, the yeah. nurse's desk um, who was looking after the child. Was it a registrar? Was it an SHO? <coughs> who was looking after the child? And I was told an SHO by the two nurses on the desk. SHO is what? A senior health officer. Is that so a doctor, is it? Yes. Okay. So they would be just underneath a registrar, but they okay. wouldn't be fully qualified. Okay. So I... I, I then asked, was there somebody else coming in to consult with the SHO? That I really did feel there was something else there. And basically, the end of it was, they did this very kind of um, minor ultrasound on the child. It was a very old kind of ultrasound in the ward. We weren't taken down to radiography or anything. And we were sent home. And that was after nine o'clock at night. We live an hour and a half away. May I also say my child was born at 29 weeks as half a twin. So his lungs would be very underdeveloped. Mm. He's a severe asthmatic. We, I slept with him that night. I got up the following morning and had to go straight to the bonds with him. Now, where, how did I end up in the bonds? I rang my first cousin and he told me, try this particular professor in the bonds I rang my GP again. Another letter went up. We went into the bonds. We were admitted straight away and he stayed there for a week. Did they find out what was wrong with him? Absolutely, straight away. 
he was sent for an MRI, he was sent for an ultrasound, he was sent for an extra x-ray to see the extent of the problem in his lower abdomen. There was some kind of a virus that needed surgery, did it? No, it wasn't a virus. It was, we, he had a virus, sorry. He had a virus. Virus. His asthma was in no way under control. He had a lower abdominal problem and he also had another issue with his um, testicle. He's going back for um, a couple of surgical procedures at the end of the month. But okay. they had to basically assess him and fix all the things okay. that were wrong with him before he can go back for surgery. All right, so what, what was all of these issues, four different issues at least, were picked up in the bonds that were missed in the CUH in a 12-year-old child. Um, yes. wh- why, was, why was it missed, do you think? Because the ultrasound they did was one, with a tr- one on a trolley that they brought into the ward. Um, they rubbed jelly on his, his belly and it wasn't enough. It could, you couldn't see what was wrong with him with that ultrasound. So was he sent home ultimately still screaming in pain? Still screaming in pain. My husband, I rang my husband and he said, don't they want to know what's the source of the pain? Yeah, and I would I have thought. Know. Yeah. But I said they sent us home with a prescription for Boscopan, which actually made his issue a lot worse. Because when we went into the bonds the following morning, they said, what have you been giving him? And I said, Boscopan. And I showed him the notes from CUH and they said, he shouldn't be on that. It's only making the issue worse. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, it was a, it's an horrific experience for your son, but equally for you as a parent, watching him in pain like that and being sent home in pain, only to go to another hospital and find four different diagnosed issues. And the nurses in the bonds, it doesn't matter what hospital it was, but the nurses in there were absolutely fabulous. Not just the nurses, the cleaning staff, the cooking staff, the SHOs, the registrars, the consultants, everything. They were so good, they were so kind with him, they were so gentle with him. When I asked the nurses in CUH who was looking after the child, they looked at me like they were so irritated to be asked. And they asked me who was with the child now, and I said, my husband, your father. And they said, you shouldn't be in here, you should be outside. And I said, oh, I can wait outside, even though the waiting room is empty. But it was... Was, it, was, it, was there a lot of activity? Were they very busy dealing with different patients and run off their feet? No, though? there was one other child on the ward. Okay. The rest of the rooms were cleaned, and I suppose they wanted to keep the rooms cleaned. I get it with the pandemic that's on. I get that. But it was a real kind of like tick for tat. After asking that question, it was like, who are you? Yeah, okay, okay. Okay, all right. How is he now? Has he had all the work done? He had to be readmitted at the weekend, but he's actually doing good. And he will go back in at the end of the month for surgery. Under the care of the bonds? Under the care of the bonds, who were absolutely fabulous. Okay, thank you for that, Maria. Appreciate it. Um, I'm writing this email with mixed emotions, relieved in a way that I wasn't exaggerating the awful care in the CUH that my mother had to put up with but sad knowing so many other people have had similar experiences. Uh, I can confidently say that a lot of the staff do not care about the elderly. Remember now, this conversation on Monday morning started with regards to observations um, and elderly patients. I can confidently say that a lot of staff do not care about the elderly. Four years ago, my 78-year-old mother was a patient in a six-bedroom ward in the CUH. As a family, we had to spend as much time as was allowed in the hospital with her to make sure she was washed 
taken to the bathroom and fed. The woman next to my mother was sitting in the chair crying all the time, saying, I could walk when I came in here. I could walk when I came in here. Now I can't. She was just left sitting there, you see, every single day. Uh, the woman across from my mother was ringing her bell 50, for 15 minutes. Nobody came. I asked her if I could do something for her. She said she just needed to be turned, which, of course, I couldn't do. A care assistant eventually arrived and started shouting at the woman. I intervened and said, she only wants to be turned, please. Don't speak to her like that. The care assistant walked over to me, shaking her finger in my face, shouting, Is this woman your relation? Mind your own business. I did report her to her supervisor. After a couple of phone calls and a written complaint, my poor mother begged me to let it go, as she was terrified of the repercussions. My mother was eventually moved to a nursing home, but she had a fall a few months later and ended up back in the CUH. At this stage, she was completely immobile. It's hard to believe, but the nurses were insisting on making her stand when moving her from bed to chair. And on one occasion, they were insisting that she could walk to the bathroom. Every day, I had the same conversation with the staff, telling them over and over again that she could not walk. The response was always the same. If she doesn't walk, then it'll take two of us to move her. So she'll be waiting a lot longer before we get to her. When I asked if I could bring her to the bathroom and shower her myself, they said yes. But that was a mistake. On my way to her ward early one morning, I overheard the nurse's handover report. When my mother's name was mentioned, the nurse said, Oh, her daughter will shower her. Her daughter will look after her. So I got to take over her care. When my mother returned to the nursing home, her one fear was that she'd have to return to the CUH again at some time in the future. And I promised her that that would never be the case again. My mother passed away in February. And God love her, while she was dying... While she was dying, her only fear was that she would be sent back to the CUH. That was never going to happen. Thank God she passed away peacefully and with dignity in Brookfield Nursing Home on February 19th. Why, Neil, are elderly people treated so badly? Sorry to hear about the passing of your mother and the circumstances that led to her death in the last months of her life. In my summation, care of the elderly in a hospital setting changed dramatically, Neil, when the nursing profession received their own degree program. While I have no issue with nurses being educated to a higher level than they historically would have been, the university qualification seems to have brought with it an air of holier-than-thou amongst the profession. It's quite evident from the, depressed, the depressing stories I've been listening to on your show over the past few days. Traditional nursing duties are now left to a few care assistants. The nurses seem to have been more concerned about being on their social media, carrying out administration work and dispensing drugs. Where has the dignity and respect for our fellow humans gone? It's evident the treatment of elderly patients is straightforwardly a crisis now in our hospitals. Nurses and care workers should sign up to a new code of conduct which guarantees that elderly patients are treated with dignity and respect and simply not treated like objects. When I was reared, I was taught to respect my elders. I do applaud you for the work you and your team are doing. As they say, there's no smoke without fire. I would expect nothing more than an independent of the rev- independent review of the CUH at this stage. Based on your calls, I suppose emails and texts as well, over the past couple of days. Um, lines open at 1-850-104-106. Don, good morning. Morning. You wanted to talk to me about your ma'am, was it? 
Yeah, well, I think you have some of the background there. She actually passed away in January 2017. Yeah. And she was actually in the CUH for three three weeks previous to that. She was in... She was admitted to the acute medical uh, assessment ward okay. in just before Christmas in 2016, and what you call it, we weren't quite sure what was what was wrong with her. She wasn't her, her herself. She had had a stroke in previous uh, previous to this, what you call it, a couple of years earlier. Was she an elderly woman. She was at the time. She was 72. Okay. And what you call it? So she was inside for for tests and. What you call it over Christmas? There, there's we have a very small family. There's only just myself and my brother, and we're married. What you call it? So there's only the four of us. So we were up and down to the hospital over that Christmas, and obviously they were short-staffed over Christmas. So we accepted that they were short-staffed. What you call it? But we were we were constantly looking for information because my mother was just basically left to her own devices in her bed. What you call it in that ward? No. From the outset, I just wanted to say I personally wouldn't have any complaints like other people have had about nurses in there. Fair enough, they'll run off their feet. A lot of them, like in that ward, there's probably maybe 40 beds. It's directly above any inside in the CUH. And at any one given time, there was maybe four or five nurses inside there for, for all these patients. Now, I suppose the point I'm coming from is the medical kind of care that she actually got or didn't get. Because... Eventually, we were we were consistently looking for to see doctors. We uh, in the three weeks that my mother was there, one doctor I got to see um, in all the time I was going in and out of the hospital. And what you call it, we were there was no tests being carried out. What you call it that we knew of, because they couldn't. Nobody. She kept telling us. My mother kept telling us that she had seen nobody. So she uh, was like going, three weeks in the bed. Three weeks in the bed. Nothing happening. Nothing happening. Nothing happening. Uh, what you call more often, she was just bored, bored over. That's all we were listening to every day that we used to go up. And it got to such a stage, Neil, where, God forgive me, but what you call it, we actually thought my mother was starting to go senile and getting a touch of dementia because we would go up, we'd go up one day, one given, any given day, and she'd have a new ailment to tell us about. And it was getting to the stage where we thought she was hearing people next door in the bed next door that she that they'd have this ailment and she'd tell us they had that they that she'd have this. But is it any wonder that you'd go downhill if you were three weeks in a bed doing nothing? Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah. Huh? I know hindsight's a wonderful thing, unfortunately. But um anyway we eventually the doctor that I did see, he actually told me that they were waiting for a psychiatrist to see my mum. So we were kinda again which like that only just led us down the garden path again to think, oh, because there must be something wrong mentally with mum. And so, like, anyway, to try and cut a long story short, the last the last thing that my mum told us when she was inside in the hospital was that she had a pain in her lungs. And so you call it, we were like, again, we thought somebody else is after having this complaint. I know, she, yeah. She's just, she just going on. I know. So, anyway... Jigs in the reels. She was, after the three weeks, she was discharged on a Wednesday. Anyway, what you call it. Um, sorry, my apologies. I'll just go back. Sorry, the Wednesday before she was discharged, she was supposed to have a veneograph for, to check for a blood clot, which was cancelled on her. So she was discharged that Friday then, what you call it. And it was the following Wednesday where she passed away. And what you call it. So it's like obviously a post mortem was carried out because she died at home. And so we 
like I don't I, I don't know if you know you have to wait weeks and weeks and weeks before the postmortem comes through and it's actually my mum's GP that had to go through the postmortem with myself and my brother and obviously Sarah Stone went through the, the um, postmortem with us and told us explained to us obviously it's in a lot of medical terms that it was actually a blood clot that my, my mum had passed away from so of course like that rang bells for us like when we were saying like she was supposed to have a test for that Wednesday before she was came out and it was cancelled and as I said in the text there yesterday which you call like the GP's actual words to us was he his face hit the floor as much as ours and his words were look lads you can you can chase this up if you want to he said he said but he said I am a doctor, he says, I can guarantee, he said, they will circle the wagons in the CUH, he said. He said, you'll be chasing it for years, he said, and at the best, he said, with all the expenses going to cost you, he said, you might get an apology. And he said, that was a, a mice, he said, it's a big mice. So the point that I'm trying to get across is I'm, I'm not complaining about nurses and I appreciate all the stories that people have come on with and everything but it's 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 the lack of of medical care and it's through the system that's where I think a lot of but who cancelled who cancelled the the blood clot checkup I Neil I to be perfectly honest with you as a specific person I don't know I presume it was it I presume whatever doctor was but she was to be checked for a blood clot it was cancelled. Your mother went home, cancelled. died yeah. of a blood clot. Yeah. Her doctor... That's heartbreaking, like. Oh, no, yeah. I, 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 the family, we live, we live with it day to day, like, since for the last three and a half years, like, you know? Because she could have lived... She's only 72. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. So if that checkup had been done for that specific thing and it was penciled in, there was an appointment time and everything, was there? Um, no, there's no appointment time, Neil, that time, that three weeks that we were up there. We were, there was no such thing as an appointment time. It was like day to day. Yeah, but how do you know that they had penciled her in for that? Oh, sorry, they, she, she had told us that she was to be going. The way my mother used to describe it, my mother wasn't a very educated person, Neil. She left school very well, no, young, I'd say that she was educated in other ways. Yeah, though, I yeah. know. She would say, she'd say to us, what you call it, I must go down for the, the exam. They're going to put the dye into me. And she was dreading it. That's that's how we know it was the veneograph. So that's you know categorically that there was to be yeah, that yeah, checkup yeah. or that investigation, which never happened, and your mother died from it. Never happened. Well, she died from a blood clot. That's her, her postmortem states that she died from a blood clot. And how do you feel Look, about that? Eh, <laughs> guilty as hell. <laughs> For want of why? Term. Why do you feel guilty? That I did that I wasn't more forceful the three weeks that I was that I was that my mother was in the COH. I know you feel responsible. Nothing you can do, like you know, uh, you just have to live with it, you know. And people that know me that would know me now, and they can hear me on the radio. They know exactly what I'm like. I'm quite a, I'm quite a direct, forceful person when it comes to other things. And unfortunately, you believe that those doing their job knew what they were doing. I know, it's not that I know that they know what they're doing. I just, I, I can't understand why they didn't 
go through with the with the test um, as to, like I say, whether it was a matter of resources in that ward, whether it's a matter of resources in the system, whether you know whether she like I don't think my mother my mother wouldn't have been a type of person that she would have pestered. I know, but one wonders if, as a son, you have to wonder whether or not she was even a priority to them. Um, oh, most certainly not, because I can like that's like the evidence bored out from that because they didn't carry a test. As I said, she was left there for three weeks, three solid weeks. She was just sitting in the bed, do not even know there was there were some serious sick people inside in that ward. Like, oh, I know, but um, you get referred up from any like, and there was some serious people around her, and what you call it, but she was just sitting there, reading magazines. But, you know, doing, doing puzzles and stuff and then that was it. Like, she was sitting there for three weeks. And it's it's obvious, like, what you call it, that she was deteriorating in the bed, but it was all inside. Like, there was nothing visibly outside to show that she was sick, to be perfect, to, to, for the want of another term. Oh, I mean, it would be just a tragedy if it wasn't for the cancelled checkup for a blood clot, you know, that would, you know. Yeah, it was just, just a simple test and... I presume, I presume medication would have just, would have got rid of it. Whatever procedure they would have used perhaps could have prolonged her life. Don, I'm yeah. so sorry to hear that. It's just tragic well, and I'm sad also well, that you I carry just, an amount of responsibility for it yourself, you know. Yeah, I just thought people just get her story across. Like, Thank you for it. Thank you for it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Don. Um, do stay in touch. Text 0868 I've been sent some photographs of um, some... Chaps being arrested by uh, the Gardaí, uh, Ballancolig way. Um, there's a lot of blood involved in one or two, in the one particular character who's been arrested, brought to the ground and handcuffed by the guards. So we checked with them. They said, yeah, the Gardaí arrested and charged two men in their 20s and 30s in relation to a number of dangerous driving incidents and possession of a knife in Ballancolig yesterday. Six o'clock, two men arrested in Musgury, Musgury Estate, brought to Grawn. Um, there was no stabbing related to this incident that some people had been suggesting earlier on. So happy to uh, update you on that one. Pat, good morning. How are you? Um, I'm glad you're bringing this up. Uh, my wife was in the, the COH okay, last month. Uh, shifted by ambulance on three occasions. She was in 5B on two occasions, which was very, very good. She, the last occasion, she was put into 1A was a total disaster. She was left in her chair. I, I, if, as for instance, one night I was there and uh, she said she wanted to go into bed about 20 past seven. I asked the nurse and she said she'd put her in. Um, we were for out in a half to seven visiting time. Um, I went home and at 10 to 10 I rang and I asked her like, um, is she, how was she? And she said, I'm still waiting in the chair, she said. So I put down the phone. Your wife said I'm still in the chair, yeah. She was still on the chair where her legs were swollen. Um, she's in a wheelchair. She needs constant care, 24 hours, right? Mm. I'm her carer. And I put her into, um, I rang the desk and I said, my wife is still on. Oh, she said, we'll do it in a minute. I said, no. She's, I asked at 20 past seven, tell her the story like that. I asked at 20 past seven, the nurse, that she'd been in two minutes. And in the meantime, we were put out and we had to go. At half a seven, the bell came and that was it, out the door. Um, I, I rang back and my wife said they came in and they put her back into the bed but they weren't very very nice because I had to ring the desk and tell them to put them in and the other thing I have You think to they weren't nice to her because you rang as they were just suggesting Absolutely Okay. I asked the nurse on one occasion then I said to the nurse I said when she was pulling in there first I said my wife don't look well at all I said and I said you know, I'm not happy like 
So she says, um, yeah, she's okay. I said, she's not, she's had the temperature, she was sitting in the wheelchair, and all that, so the next thing anyway, um, the nurse came in and she says to my wife, um, I'm never very good to you today. She was, you know, and uh, she'd broken English. And I, she and I said, oh yes. And I said, um, but my wife can't remember for the last three weeks. I said, you know that? How could she remember today, like? And she's not been looked after. So she didn't like it. And I just told her to put down that I wanted the doctor to ring me in the morning, that I wanted an update on her, because she said she couldn't give me an update. It was a total, of all the times that she was in the CUH, and she's been in there on many, many occasions, both on life support and what have you. That was the worst experience that we've ever had. And it's ever since that we can't go and look after them that we can't be there for the hours that we're there we don't know what's happening to them because of the COVID restrictions because of the COVID restrictions and because normally I would be there as most of the day looking after yeah. and make sure that she's okay and I would have an update of what's happening with her like but um, it's just it is terrible like unbelievable and but she's at home now with pneumonia she's so. at home now she was sent home with pneumonia right they said it should recover I during her temperature yesterday was 38, 38.7. I during she told me, she said, I am not going to hospital. She said, I will never go in there again. She said, I said, but what about if you would put up to 5B that you wouldn't go in? Well, I would not go into that hospital, she said. So I rang the doctor anyway yesterday and uh, they rang me back last night and I told him and he said, I think she'd have to go into hospital. I said, no, she won't go in. So I ran antibiotics again and she's on steroids. So hopefully... She's her but see, my own, I, I do appreciate that she's unwell yeah. and, and well done for yeah. being her full-time care. But all I'm hearing yeah. here is that they were slow putting her to bed in their defence. Was there more? There was the pneumonia. There was uh, ringing the bell. She was ringing the bell. I said, she said, I'm ringing the bell. And there's no one coming to me. She said, no water. One night when I was up. And I said, ring the bell. I'd have a look and see if walking. I went outside the door. There was no light on. The light was on, but there was no one coming. We were there for half an hour. No one came in. Did you see anyone out there? I did see him. There was loads of staff there, but there was no one answering. I mean, I have to say, like, they weren't short-staffed, and the beds weren't full in this particular night. And what were the staff in doing the, in your... What did you there observe? Was, there was three sitting down talking. They were making out, maybe it was about quarter past seven, the changeovers or whatever they do. But, like, they weren't answering the bells. There wasn't the only bell that was on that night. But That's everything can come yeah. to a standstill just because there's a changeover happening, surely. But it, it, yeah, but it does. All right. Need, it was terrible. Of all you, my wife was in there maybe four or five times last year and previous times and over the years. And I can tell you this was the worst experience in one year I could feel. And the room she was in, and she was private as well. She has the VHI. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Can't say anything about that. No, but it makes no difference for your VHI. What's the name? People should be looked after. But she wasn't looked after. Okay. She wasn't. okay. It thanks. was the worst experience. I would never. I would like her to go in there again if she was going into one air. Do you know? She doesn't want. And she doesn't want to go back in herself. She won't. No, no. I'd say if she got very, very sick, I'd have some problems. She'd have to be nearly guaranteed that she's going back up to five B. So the only way that she'll go in there is if she's in there and she doesn't know she's going in, but you need to be unconscious but, for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's the only way. Like I don't know. So listen, thanks very thanks, much. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate it. Thank you. Listening to the lady on air with you, particularly Monday morning, starting all of this off, Phil. Her story resonated with me in 2017. My mum got ill and she was kept in hospital for tests. She discovered that she had stage four terminal ovarian cancer. Within two weeks, she was in the chemo ward. 
As you can imagine, I was devastated. I can imagine because that's what um, took my own mother. Um, As you can imagine, I was devastated. A lot of the care that she got was excellent from both carers, nurses and doctors. However, my mum was inside the hospital for four months. Uh, she She developed psychosis from the medication she was put on. She was a completely different person for some time. Eventually, she came round and she was herself again. Over time, her condition, both medically, physically and emotionally, took its toll on her and she got sicker. I spent every day, all day with her for that time. She was left out twice to visit home or when myself and my brother could take her away for a little hotel break. She was so unwell that she had to use a wheelchair when she was out and about with me. One particular evening, she phoned me when I was at home. I'd left her at 6.30 p.m. that evening. She told me she was very frightened, as one of the nurses was very nasty to her. I asked her for the nurse's name. My mother wouldn't give it to me, as she didn't want to get into trouble. I was very worried, and over the next few days, I kept asking her, who is this person? My mum knew I wouldn't let anyone upset her. At the weekend, I was on my way to visit her on a Saturday morning. When I went in, the other patients told me that my mum was in the bathroom. I began to tidy her nighties and to get the ones together that needed to be washed. I was behind the curtain of her bed doing this when a nurse came storming into the ward and dragged the curtain back very angrily. And she was shouting at me, thinking I was mum, until she saw who I was. She was screaming, get back into bed. Who told you to get out? As, I can, as you can imagine, I was horrified by this. She quickly changed her tone when she was met by my stare. My mother came back to her bed not knowing what had happened. I could see she was terrified of this nurse. The nurse went out and eventually she had to come back in. And She was all sweetness, light-toned with us when she returned. Oh, so nice. I noticed that she had no badge name. I asked for her name. Her face went red and she told me her name. I told my mum I was going to complain about this nurse and my mum admitted it was the same nurse that she was afraid of. The nurse in question was, and I'm given her age or average age. So the following Monday, I complained to the staff nurse in charge of the ward. She apologised and said she would certainly bring up the issue. Um, The other patients also said this particular nurse was a tyrant. Their words, not mine. If my mum was well, believe me, she would have been only too capable of putting this nurse in her box but being so ill and coming to terms with terminal cancer, it all took her toll on her. I had to effectively be her voice during that stressful time. Towards the end of my mum's life, with about four weeks she had left on the planet, my mum was told that she was going to be moved to another ward. She asked me to go and check it out. It was on the second floor of the hospital. I came back to tell her that under no circumstances was she going to move. It was horrific in there. In the corridor, there was a very unwell young woman rocking back and forth in a wheelchair, screaming, and an orderly was in charge of her. I didn't leave the hospital until uh, after 6pm that evening, after looking at that ward. My mum told me, my mum was told to pack her things as she was being moved. As my mother was not able to do this, the nurses gathered her things for her, and she was promptly moved to that awful ward. I came back up to her, because she was really distressed. The ward she was in was like something you'd see in a horror film. The curtains were filthy on the windows, the rooms smelled, the toilets had no doors on them, there was excrement all over the cubicles, on the seats, in the toilets, on the walls and on the floor. Excrement. Excrement? Why aren't they cleaned? In my room, my mum was with a very elderly and a very little old lady who was terrified also. Two terrified women. Across the ward, there was another lady who didn't appear mentally well. My mum was so terrified being there. She made me go home later that night. I went back at 8 a.m. the next morning. 
Uh, I went looking to see who was in charge and I found the person who was in charge and I told her I was horrified that my mum, who was a private patient, was left in a room that I wouldn't put a dog in. I also said to her that my mum was not spending another night in there and that I was making an official complaint to the CEO. I asked this nurse to come to see the ward with me and I asked her if she was proud of this filthy ward, to which she replied she was very proud of it. I mentioned the smell and conditions of the bathroom and the nurse said that those bathrooms are cleaned every 15 minutes. I produced my phone, which I had taken photos of the previous day. Clearly, these toilets weren't cleaned in that time when I saw them. Same stains, same condition as yesterday. My mum just wanted to get out of the hospital at that point, so I kept her downstairs in the lobby with me until we were met by two ladies that tried to dissuade us from complaining to the CEO. We went into the office, mum, myself and my brother. We gave our accounts of what had been the last straw that broke the camel's back. In the end, my mum was so frightened, she just wanted to come home. So she ended up discharging herself. I could tell you hundreds of incidents at the hands of some bullies in the guise of nurses. Of course, most of them were efficient, but I too feel that once a person is dying, these people get left to their own devices quite a lot. The dying. My mother was suffering and we were, we were too as a family. The carers and some nurses were wonderful, but there were many who left, let me put it like this, a lot to be desired. My mum was not demanding attention, nor was I. I literally lived in the hospital with her and don't regret a moment of it. She would have done the same for me. Four months after our death, I too discovered that I had breast cancer. All I believed due to the stress that I'd been under. Can't go on the radio to chat because I would just end up crying. It's still a bit difficult, but I wanted to share this with you. My mum did not deserve cancer, nor did she deserve to be treated shoddily. I cannot emphasize enough the wonder carers she did have and a particular professor who was a wonderful person too. They were always professional and respectful, at least. Hope you get to read this out. Thanks, Neil. The Neil Prenderville Show on Twitter at Neil Red FM. Um, on Monday, I got a three-line statement from uh, the CUH uh, that has now turned into an updated one-and-a-half-page statement from the CUH. So the st- this statement is much longer than the one on Monday where they didn't want to comment and couldn't comment on individual cases and reiterated the importance of care for uh, their patients. Um, now we have a statement from the CUH general manager, which runs an awful lot longer than the three lines we got on Monday. I wonder if that has anything to do with the volume of calls. I'm sure that it has. So rather than read it out right now, I've requested perhaps if the general manager of the CUH, Dr. Gerardo Callahan, would like to come on air instead. And uh, we'll see if we get a response on that. I have Crohn's disease, suffered with uh, bowel problems during lockdown. Um, extremely painful. Uh, at the start of lockdown, I was brought to the CUH by ambulance and during lockdown, I had to go there a few times. Bear in mind now, lockdown's very difficult times in a hospital. The first time I was there, I was seen very fast and brought to a room on my own to the Lee Suite. There were two nurses who looked after me who made me laugh, made me feel so comfortable and were very professional. There was a male doctor who examined me, so patient, so kind, so sympathetic. The other times I had to go through A&E. I was seen fast treated with respect and the nurses and doctors were so kind even though they were very busy. I spent a lot of time over the years up and down to the CUH. I'm still up and down there a lot. I have nothing but praise for the staff be it the cleaners, the doctors, the nurses, the reception staff. It's getting frustrating having to spend such a long time in hospital. It was not the fault of the staff. Every time I've been there it's been extremely busy but I've been seen 
and this, I've seen the staff do their best at all time. They deserve praise for what they do. I do believe that people have had some bad experiences, though, and listening to your program is disturbing, but I personally have not experienced anything like that, says Mike in Douglas. Uh, just to give our experience, because it's important to give the good with the bad, my mother was sent to the CUH in an ambulance by, from her nursing home. We didn't realise how ill she was when she was going there. From the moment she entered to her passing, I can say nothing but positive things about all of the staff. A&E staff, and in particular the nurses there, housekeeping, and the nurses in 4B where she stayed. The doctors were kind we didn't have all that much to do with them aside from updates via phone calls. She had advanced Alzheimer's, so that was a difficulty in addition to her medical condition. She was well cared for at all times, washed, cleaned regularly, and she had her dignity in the way she was treated in there. I honestly can't tell you how reassuring it was that our last days in there were very peaceful in the midst of a chaotic hospital. And just generally to have our needs met. Can't say enough about who, how good we found them. The nurse that was on that night she passed was so very kind and I won't forget her. Don't give up my personal details. So it's very important to accentuate the positive. Remember that beautiful story that we had on air maybe at the start of this year where somebody couldn't make it back to the hospital. I believe it was for their mam who was in the A&D and she died in the A&D because they couldn't get her to a ward fast enough for whatever reasons. But anyway, the, the beautiful part of the story at the time, and I forget it, was that a nurse held her hand and stayed with her as she died. And I thought, well, that's what that profession is really all about, isn't it? Um, for God's sake, is this a joke? Cop on. There's not all bad news coming out of the CUH. We all had bad experiences, uh, but good ones always outweigh the bad. It's everywhere, says Anthony. That's all very well, my friend, as long as you're not one of the ones, I suppose, that's having the bad experience. I mean, what are you, what are you suggesting? Like, I mean, and even what are the CUH suggesting or, you know, people who send statements on behalf of them? Don't be allowing these stories on the air. Like, why wouldn't I allow people to tell these stories on the air for fear of upsetting the hospital? Like, if anything, it will improve things. Surely be to God, you need to talk about the, I mean, what am I supposed to say to people? Oh, no, no, that's an awful story. That's a horrible story. That's a horror story. But I can't put it on the air because I'd be upsetting the staff. I mean, forget about it. I mean, I've got a job to do as well, just like they do. Margaret, good morning. Hi, Dave. Um, at some um, stage, incidentally, I will just have to move on because uh, this is day three. Go ahead, Margaret. Right, okay. And, and I'm going to make this fairly rapid. I Thank am um, an ongoing patient of the, the CUH and have been for the last... Just move around there, year. if you don't mind. Sorry. That's better. Any better? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So I have been a patient for the last 11 years um, because I have cancer and uh, I've had a couple of cancers. Um, and I just want, before I tell you about the incident, I want to say to you that the nurses and doctors that I deal with are exemplary. They are just amazing and I have nothing but good things to say about them. However, I was in... I didn't realise it was 1A. Um, I had an operation. That was the bed they were able to give me. I was in with uh, six, sorry, five other immobile people, but I wasn't immobile. Um, I had um, a man next to me. And that's the crux of your conversation with me, the gentleman? Yes. The gentleman next to me was, I'm a public patient and I've never been treated any differently. He was a private patient and he obviously had dementia. I wasn't sure, but I do know that he was very ill and um, not long after, actually. He had only like two weeks to live or 
something like that. I phoned up from his family the next day. But I knew his name. Um, I had don't want to know his name, incidentally. I don't want anything that identifies yeah. nurses, no. doctors or patients. Okay, don't yeah. want to know. And I'm not identifying the nurse either. Um, what happened was, during the night, for some reason or other, the person who was meant, the medical person who was meant to sit with him, wasn't with him. He didn't understand where he was and was calling out constantly for his family, calling out for a nurse, calling out for a nurse. Eventually ended up with, I don't know if they put his pyjamas on him or not, but ended up sprawled naked on the bed, um, trying to get out, even though he couldn't walk and wasn't even aware of it. And the bell was wrapped around the frame of the bed. Now, I will tell you without any problem whatsoever that it was only, I don't know her name, so it's odd one, it was only one nurse that caused this problem. She seemed to be in charge. I understand when they're changing over, they're, you know, trying to get tablets together, and there seemed to be, you know, three of them doing numerous rooms. So I can understand they were run off. They're like, the cleaners were great, etc., etc. the toilet was clean. There was a smell of urine, but if you're going to have geriatric patients who aren't capable of, you know, um, going to the bathroom themselves, that's going to be there. But my problem was, my parents are alive, and I really, all I could think of was that if that was my father, I would, I, I, he, it was breaking my heart. So I spent my night awake with him. Was the and bell, was the, are you saying that the bell or the button for the bell was out of reach, is it? Yes. Purposely? Now, I went out to the nurse. And she said, yes, we know we'll be with them shortly. What were they doing? Which never happened. Um, well, the particular nurse I was talking to was sitting at uh, the table outside the ward writing, um, I don't know what. Um, the other two little nurses who were very, very kind were spread out over the rest of the rooms. I don't even, I can't even tell you it was one a because... I, you know, I just know I was in geriatric patients, and I see when we see when we see of a nurse on a, when we see a, a nurse on a ward, that nurse is not only dealing with that ward. That nurse could be dealing with three other wards. You know, when we see a nurse sitting down, that nurse could be filling in these reams and reams of reports and paperwork that HICWA and, insists yes, and I, and I, that they I fill have out. No problem, I have no problem conceding that need. But what I think the problem is, is that if you're going to have geriatric patients in who have um, Alzheimer's or, um, you know, dementia or whichever, and they're not mobile and they don't know where they are and their family for some reason can't be there, why can't they add on another two nurses to that particular ward? Okay, thanks for sharing that. I'm obliged to. I'm over over time. We're back after 11. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Tricia, good morning. Good morning, Neil. We've been talking on air uh, of the past couple of days of very, very sad and harrowing stories, particularly regarding the elderly in Cork hospitals. Tell me about your mother, Mary. My mum was just gone 60 and she was a diabetic and she had to go into the South Infirmary for a short stay to deal with her being a diabetic and while she was in there she picked up an infection and it was called C. diff I don't know if you've ever heard of it C. diff I have yeah 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 Yeah. she picked that up nobody ever told us anything about this we never knew that she had this or anything they dealt with her diabetes anyway and they sent her home 
And when she was at home, she got very agitated. She was seeing things. The language that, you know, that came out from my mother. Like, my mother was very, she was, you know, like, she would bless herself if she said, of course. Yeah. We didn't know what was wrong. I rang the doctor again. I said, we can't, we couldn't control her at home or anything like that. Like, you know, like, she needed to be in hospital. So the doctor sent her to the mercy. Because while she was at home, she was hallucinating. She wasn't eating. Uh, as you say, there was a lot of language, but and she was yeah. tro- she was throwing things around the house. She was completely out of sorts. Yeah, she was. Yeah. And what and what did they say? This what did they tell you about this? When did you hear about the infection? When she went into the mercy, you know, like they were just investigating, you know, a couple of things about her, and they found out that she had to get um, a double bypass done, and then it turned out that she got the CT test done, and. It turned out that she was positive, so they couldn't do the bypassing because she had this. An infection that she picked up in the South Infirmary, yeah. Yeah. Was it like MRSA or one of those type infections? Yeah, it's more or less the same as MRSA, but it's it's, it's more dangerous. Oh, my God. You know? Oh, my God. So was she put into an isolation unit then? When she was up in the Mercy Hospital, she was put into um, the male ward. They had an isolation room up there that was available, so... It was St. Patrick's. So she was up there for her stay in, in the Mercy Hospital. Now, I have to say, the Mercy Hospital, like, she really liked being up there because she said they were very good to her up there. Whereas in Sutton Farmery, she didn't like, she didn't she didn't want anyone dealing with her up there. She said that they weren't at all nice to her up there, you know. But she found this, the, Mercy, the Mercy nurses very nice. I wonder what she time. meant about the Southern Farmery. They weren't kind to her, is it? She said that they, were, they weren't very nice to, you know, like they'd be giving out to her, like if she called them or anything like that. And Neil, I actually, I was up there one day and um, it was actually at night um, after work, you know, and we used to go up after work and we used to go up when we were off during the day because um, my mum was hard of hearing, you know. But I was up there one night and she was in a ward that was, you know, the, the big long ward with those loads of beds. It's, it's the female ward. Okay. Yeah, she was up in that ward and I went up there and there was a, an, an old woman next to her in the bed. And the poor woman, I wanted to go to sleep. She just she called the nurse for her tablets to, you know, her night tablets to make her go to sleep and stuff like that. Well, the nurse came down, and I swear to God, like if I wasn't there, I wouldn't have believed it myself. And like I really wanted to report her, but I was afraid then in case they would come back on my mom. What did she say? Something? Oh, she was saying, you, "You wait your turn now, and you stop coming to me. And there's more than you. And how dare you ring me? And when I'm dealing with someone else and all this." You know, like she could have just said, I'd be a minute or something. I oh, know, there's better like ways of doing it. The woman was actually crying. She was an oh, old, like, old woman, yeah? I think she was in her late 70s. Now, this happened in 2007. Yeah, when your mother was 60, 61 years old. Um, she wasn't even 60, Neil. She wasn't <sighs> even 60. All right, so she went in to the south with swollen ankles related to diabetes. Yeah. Well, she was in there, she mm-hmm. picked up the infection. She had yeah. a terrible reaction to it when she went home as we say, yeah. and we've dealt with that. She went into the Mercy to an isolation unit and you were telling the lads that she fell, did she? Um, when she was in the Mercy, I went up to her one day about one o'clock and she was out of the bed and she was sitting on a chair with her feet up and I said, how come you're sitting out here? And she said, she said I fell. And I went out, nobody rang me. And so I, I, or nobody rang my sisters. So I, I went out to the um, nurse and I said, I said, my mother says she fell, what happened? And they said she fell out of the bed. And I asked my mum, I said, did you fall out of the bed? And she said, no. She said, no. When I was trying to go to the bathroom, the nurse let me fall. Now my mother couldn't walk with this, see this. 
she couldn't walk at all. She lost feeling in her legs. She lost everything. Like, Lord, she couldn't feed herself. She couldn't do anything with this disease that she had, mm. right, with this infection. And they said that she fell out of the bed, right? So they were waiting for her to see a doctor, to come down for a doctor. So she was waiting for a couple of hours. And eventually they came down and they said that she, her hip was broken. Oh, my God. So... Yeah, so that was fine anyway. This I think this happened on a Tuesday. So on a Wednesday, they said that she took up to the CUH to have an operation to get her to get her hip fixed. So I went up the, the I went up with two ambulance men, and they were so nice. You know, the ambulance men were oh, they were lovely. They were lovely people. And when we went up there, you know, we did the usual thing: the stretcher into the emergency room and stuff like that and this woman comes down and she goes oh I have no um, there's no isolation ward uh, room for her bring her back down to the mercy and my mum was brought back down to the mercy again because there's no isolation ward up or um, room up in available up in the CUH so back down and that was on a Wednesday and I went home on the Wednesday and I went to work on Thursday because I did the 12-hour shift and my poor dad rang me and he told me that my mum, he said, come up to this mercy um, as soon as you can. And when I went up there, my mother was laid out. She passed away? The bed. Yeah. In a matter of days? Um, in, not even a matter of days. I'd say it was only two or three days. And... My poor mother was laid out inside in the bed and my poor dad, like, my dad didn't even last a year, not even a year and a half after. He was so heartbroken. Did he just waste away? Yeah, he just he just kicked it up literally because they were with each other since they were sixteen. You know, um, they were always together. Because I know there was an inquest into the death of your mam, and there the was. coroner said uh, recorded a verdict of accidental death, noting yeah. that your mother um, would not have died if she hadn't fallen. <laughs> and it was said that a medical student at the nurses' station yeah. said that he heard somebody crying for help. Uh, and he yeah. found your mum on the floor beside her bed. Does that mean that she was trying to make it from her bed to the bathroom herself? My mother couldn't walk. My mother, we had my sister and me had to carry my mother to the bathroom when we were up there, and my dad had to hold on to her. Um, you know the stand for shower oh, or something. To stand anyway, that was hooked up to her. The um, drip. The drip. Yeah, he had to hold on to that. The three of us had to carry out to the out to the child. So my mother couldn't get out of bed at all herself. You so know? you, so your family always um, disagreed with what the hospital were saying that she yes, tried to go on did. her own. You believe that the staff member let her fall? Yeah, she told us. Like my mother wasn't didn't tell us. Well, she, my mother never liked to get anyone into trouble. Do you know what I mean? My mother. But your mum told you that she was being helped by a member of staff and she fell. Yeah. Yeah. Even um, though said they said in evidence that. They found her on the floor crying. Yeah, they did, yeah. After she died, I we met the doctor and the doctor called us into the room. He said to my father, are you having an autopsy done? And we were all there. And I said to my dad, please, dad, don't do it. I said, because I said she suffered enough. And my dad said, no. And he said, he said to my dad, if I were you, I would have an, an autopsy done on her. He said, just take my word for it. And eventually we did have the autopsy done. And, you know, the, when it came back, my mother was only four and a half stone. She had a broken neck, a broken hip from her stay in hospital. And someone up there told us that if that happened at home, the guards would have been called. <sighs> Absolutely, so, the guards would have been called. A broken neck as well as the broken hip from the fall. Yeah, she had a broken neck as well, yeah. And they never told us that. They told you about the hip, but they didn't tell yeah. you about, about her broken neck? Well, you see, 
they had to tell us about the hip because I went up. You see, they never rang me when they said about the hip. When she broke her, they never rang. I went up and she was sitting on the chair. Nobody rang me to tell me that she fell. Nobody ever rang to tell us anything like that. And like it was only kind of towards the end that we that we found out about the C diff when they told us to, like we used to go into that room and none of us were you know none of us wore the the gear the protective gear. It's only towards the end that we wore that. Okay, so she she did get a, an infection when she was in the South Infirmary, of course. And if she yeah. hadn't got the infection, she wouldn't have been back in the in the Mercy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it was just one tragedy yeah, after the yeah. next. Then she fell. Yeah. They say that uh, she tried to go on her own. You're saying that absolutely yeah. no way would that have been the case. No. She was only no. four and a half stone, broke her yeah. hip, broke her neck, of which they told you nothing about. And yeah. the coroner said the fracture of her hip almost certainly tipped the balance in this case. Yeah. But she didn't refer in the inquest at all to her broken neck. No, she didn't, but we have it in our notes. Did they know at the inquest that there was a broken neck? I'm not, I'm not sure because it's so far back now. I know, okay. So, so you took a case against the HSE then, didn't you? Yeah, we did, yeah. Neil, it was nothing got to do with money. When we took this case, my poor dad just wanted an apology. And before my dad, before we got the apology, my dad was dead and buried and everything. So know? your dad passed away before you got an apology? Oh, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And did they apologise? They did. They wrote out an apology. I have it. Like I actually have it on paper. I have it at home. Do you know, like that was it. And like, like we're money concerned. Then, like we didn't get really much. We didn't want much anyway. We didn't want nothing. To be honest, is it because my mother never worked? When she got married, my dad supported her. Like and and like she. Well, she reared. She reared all of you and ran the home. Yeah, that was a hard job in itself. Oh, that is just so tragic. So young. Yeah. For something so simple as treating diabetes to taking her life away. Oh my god. How how do you yeah. how do you feel all these years later? Do you feel do you feel bitter about it? I do, Neil, to be honest. I, I would I would be very, very slow to go into a hospital in Cork. And if I had to go into hospital I'd probably go private. I wouldn't go into the Mercy or I wouldn't go into the COA. I would be afraid after what happened with us. Like my two uncles, my mum's two brothers they caught infections in hospitals as well, in the, one in the COH and one in the Mercy. So it's not down to a small few. It's just that people don't talk about it. And are you saying that the, those relations also had issues in hospital? Well, they picked up infections in there and they, and they passed away. They also got infections in hospital? Yeah. And yeah. did anyone ever tell you or, you know, with regards to your mother or your uncles, why people pick up infections in hospital? I just don't think they, it's clean enough, to be honest. They're, they're not clean. Like when the nuns were around years ago, the hospitals were absolutely spotless. They don't clean them properly. And because their immune system is shot to bit and they're unwell or they're, yeah. they're elderly yeah. or they're immunosuppressed, this infection yeah. kills them. Yeah. Like you give your loved ones over to people and you expect them to, um, to look after them. And then like this happens and, you know, like it's very hard to get over really. Oh, you never get over oh. something like that because it was no. all so unnecessary, wasn't it? And then, of course, yeah. your dad dying of a broken heart within 12 months? Uh, I'd say about 16 months later, he died. He's been constantly out in her grave, you know. People would ring us and say, oh, your dad's out in your mom's grave. But, like, he'd stay out there hours. Would he? Yeah. They were soulmates. Yeah. And he literally died of a broken heart then, Trish? He did, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear all of that. It's just absolutely awful. And to be honest with you, like, my oldest little girl was seven when my mum died. She's 21 now. You know, she talks about my mum constantly. You know, like, years ago, as the time went by, like, she fell out, you know, out the street. Or, you know, like, 
she wanted anything, she'd always cry for my mum. You know, they were so close. It's terrible. You know? It's terrible. Oh, my God. Listen, I'm so, so sorry for yeah. your trouble. I really am. Like, Neil, I just wanted to talk to you and tell you, like, that's not just happening today, today or yesterday at all. It's happening all the time. And I just feel sorry for people that can't speak up. People on their own. That's you know? true. That's true. But thank you for speaking up. I do appreciate it. Yeah, that's no problem. All right, Tricia. Take care of yourself, all right? All right. Thank you very much. So sorry. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at Neil Red FM. Uh-huh. 104 to 106 Red FM. And lines are open at 1850, 104, 106. Believe me, far from it. I don't want to be talking about these stories at all. I would much prefer if we had a scenario where people were telling of all the great stories within our healthcare system. And indeed, there are many uh, life-saving health stories and healthcare stories from all of our hospitals, but it does need to be talked about. Uh, unfortunately, when topics like this um, are brought up on air, it does give people the courage to tell their own stories, and that's important, and it's a respect thing for people who should be allowed to tell their stories. And again, in spite of saying it numerous times, one wouldn't be talking about all of the staff of all of the different faculties and all of the different departments awards in any one hospital. But if there are stories that need air airing or if there are issues within the health service that need improving then these stories should help to do that rather than burying your head in the sand and saying it's not true, you know, you can't corroborate it. Uh, we don't have anybody's word except for the person. And, well, you know, like that, that makes nothing better, really. It improves. Now, I remember years back, I don't know if I ever shared the story, but, but years back when things started to, um, start to, started to creak, you know, they changed the health system to the HSC away from the regionalized health boards and, you know, things really weren't working out too well. And then it got more and more pressure on the health system. And there was a lot of talk about the A&E systems and, you know, trolleys and, you know, um, corridors and, you know, stuff like that. I remember dealing with it on air years and years back. And it was an awful lot of calls and an awful lot of stories from people. And um, I don't, I don't uh, you know, I don't recall chapter and verse what happened. But I do, I do believe that I got a letter that was signed by many, many um, consultants and senior, perhaps there were even uh, doctors involved in it who, who signed this written statement, printed statement that they sent me and many of them signed uh, just really angry and very annoyed with the coverage, very annoyed with the, the stories, very annoyed with the way that I brought it across and broadcast it and my input into the programs at the time. Uh, and to this day, uh, many of those consultants refused to speak to me refuse to come on the air, refuse to take calls. These things can happen when you criticize institutions like the, like, um, like the HSC. Um, and it's unfortunate, really, because everybody working within the system takes it personally then, and it's not meant personally. You don't, you don't identify individuals, doctors or nurses on air. But it must be very upsetting for those that uh, are working hard and are passionate about their job. But there's very little that I can do about that. The stories need to be told, and I'm not going to engage in sensorial activity. Um, Sometimes people just will just shut you down. I, I recall there, I was doing some work for, you know, many years, for I don't know how many seasons I did with the, the Today Show on, on RTE. But I remember on air, it must have been in the last year, year and a half or something, because we, we talk about RTE and we talk about the license fee and we talk about the, the structure of RTE and the different facets of money that's coming in, whether it's, you know, advertising, sponsorship or or, you know, the license fee and, and things like that. And must have been talking about it on the air, but the license fee or how antiquated the system by which RTE 
you know, are funded. I mean, to some extent, if it were a private business, it'd be in big, big trouble. But of course, it's got the license fee and advertising and sponsorship and it's its coffers are boosted, I suppose, by uh, the government, giving them money or whatever. But they they run at a, at a constant loss. But um, RT didn't like me talking about that. And it came back to me through gossip that uh, I was, was dropped from the Today Show because of my criticism or stuff that I was doing on air with regards to criticizing the license fee. But that's the way it goes. That's the job you do. Um, you know, we, we just get on with it. And, you know, you just have to muddle through and give people an opportunity to, to air their views. But sometimes if you... Don't play ball or, or toe the line. The shutters come down, you can be damn sure of that. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, okay, line six. Catherine, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Thanks for taking the call. Um, my dad died at the CUH a week ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. Are, it's so recent. I know, I know, Neil. It's very recent and we are very thankful to them because he was there, there in the hospital three years ago and they really sorted him out and his medication, they gave him three years, really good quality of life that we will always be grateful for. But my issue really, Neil, is with the visiting. And I know how traumatic it is to discuss it when people couldn't visit during COVID. But in the last week of his life, we didn't know it because my dad died suddenly. Um, my sister, who is a staff um, member of the HSE in a different department to where my dad was, wasn't allowed to visit her dad because he was restricted to, you know, you've heard the one visit an hour in the evening, you know. And my sister um, is a healthcare professional and I treated my dad at home up to the illness. And um, she would like, to, would she, he needed help. You know, I, I can't say there were definitely were issues about his care and he would have needed a bit of extra help with the bathroom, um, which we probably think he didn't get. But my sister wanted to visit and couldn't visit him and I think that's the heartbreak it's very traumatic and um, the day before he died she popped down to the ward with the paper and she couldn't go onto the ward so she gave the ward to um, another colleague she knew to deliver to the nurse station so my dad got the paper and that evening my brother called in and couldn't find the paper and of course the paper had been delivered with other items and had been left folded in the locker you know it wasn't given to him and I just but he did get to, but, it, but it did get to the locker to get, his locker though he did get to the locker he yeah, did but my, yeah. you know my dad probably would need it but, but that's what, what my issue is that you know when I did go to make uh, we, did, we were going to make an issue about this but we were told it was look my dad was due home in two days and we said look we nearly have him home now um, but my issue is that I was told it was a policy and it's too harsh and it's too strict and um, it was um, just very difficult to deal with that. But she would have popped into him at 8 o'clock in the morning, she would have popped in at lunchtime, she would have checked on him and I think he would have you know, nearly expected that he, you know, um, I, I don't know he quite maybe couldn't understand why she couldn't do that, I, I, know. Don't know. I know and then it was very strict that you know um, that, that she she at one stage was trying to bring my mother who would need assistance to go to visit my father and you know she could just barely give my mother assistance to go to the war because again it's one one visit and I would you know I just think that um, I my best I would just really say to the people who are making these policy decisions that they need to have compassion and kindness and think what would they like if it was their own parent you know and I think they would say well if we have members of staff visiting people that in this present climate that it's too difficult to manage um, I would say that there must be an exception for an 88 year old man who is at, in a at risk category you know and um, that's really that's and who was there you know? when he passed away? Nobody 
And she was in the same building in a different block, is it? Not that day. But that, oh, not that day. But she would have been the previous week. She was just in a different block. You see, these are the horror stories and the tragic stories of COVID-19. Yeah. And, and Neil, look, you know... Do you um, accept I that, just, yeah? Do you accept that? I just, I'm just glad, Neil, that you're bringing this out because I think that they have to look at these rules in some... They have to look at them again, you know? And, I mean, my heart goes out. At least, Neil, we had a visit one hour a day with my father. We saw he was in very good form. He particularly enjoyed the food there. There are other issues that I wouldn't go into on air, but my heart and my prayer goes out for those people who didn't and who weren't with their loved ones, you know? And I, I just, I think it's very important that we do have this conversation, and thanks for bringing it up, Neil. Okay, thank you, and my condolence on the passing of your dad. Margaret, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Thanks for holding. How are you? It's okay. I'm okay. But my husband passed. Um, when he buried him last Thursday. The age of 77, he passed away in Marymount. He did, yes. I'm so sorry. He, had, he was you. He was suffering with cancer for some time. He was. Not yeah. for very long, Neil. He was, um, he recovered from cancer 38 years ago and led a very healthy life and reared our three sons with me. Um, he was sick. He got a pain in his back. Um, he he actually painted the house eight weeks ago here at home. And he was out walking around the garden and everything, but he got this pain in his back and he had a scan. And they said that he had um, a, a growth in his kidney and they put a stint in to um, free the, the flow of, of urine into the bladder and they told us that they couldn't treat it <coughs> excuse me but that they would they couldn't cure it but they'd treat it so he was in for a while and then they let him home here and he was just in horrendous pain horrendous pain he couldn't move in the bed and one day I rang um, his GP, he told me to call the ambulance um, to bring him in. Now, the first time he went in, he walked in, in the door himself. But he had to go by ambulance the second time because the pain was so severe. Now, the ambulance men were very, very nice and very supportive, I have to say. Now, my worry was that he'd be left lying on a trolley when he went in but mm. they assured me that he wouldn't be so he was brought straight to the ward mm. and that's when things went downhill for me and for him In what way? Um, like your previous speakers the care there is not good he was his clothes one night I, they had his clothes on behind him up in a locker you know and I thought that he he preferred to wear a t-shirt rather than a pyjama top, you know, with pyjama legs. And uh, it was filthy with the dirt. And I opened the, his locker and all the clothes were, I had them folded and put in, and they were just pushed in. And he's washing in a bag, pushed in on top of it. And I said to him, I said, did they give you a wash today, Martin? And he said, um... Oh, yes, 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 they did, they did. And I said, did they brush your teeth for you? Because he couldn't, he'd loaded drips and things, you know. But um, the first Saturday that he was in there, they missed giving him his medication by two hours, which meant he was in more pain. 
Then a few nights after I went in and he was after falling inside in the bathroom and my husband never walked again. They left him a full week without doing an x-ray on him. He was just lying in the bed and like the other people said, I think when the when there was plenty staff there, they were not short staffed and then one night, another night I went in, if I was around or I noticed this or the, the relatives were in, you might see a nurse flitting in and out of a room. So um, I said to one of the nurses, I said, like, Martin felt, you know, why wasn't he being accompanied into the bathroom? And like she said, um, you know, these things happen. And I said to her, well, these things shouldn't happen. And he was in the bed, and there were another night that, that um, he, because he Which had. May, you see, maybe I'm just like. A, sorry for stopping you now, but right. in an effort to try and be as balanced as possible, if, if patients, if a nurse believes that a patient is capable of walking to the bathroom on their own, then yes. they shall walk to the bathroom on their own. If, I if understand. They, if they have yeah. a fall. That's an awful thing to happen, but they would still have been deemed as being capable of walking to the bathroom on their own, do you know? But he wasn't really, because he had grip stands and he was very weak. He had lost, I'd say, you know, lost weight. And he wasn't the man that walked in the door. If there were more care assistants, you know. But there are care assistants as well. On the same night, on on another night, Neil... um, Again, and I don't want to be, you know, on the air. He he had no control over his bowels after he got some treatment. And if he only moved, his bowel moved. So and that happened, I suppose, didn't it? Yeah. Yes, that happened. It was from, it was a reaction they told me from the chemo. So that was a movement in the bed. Yeah. yeah so I felt like, like he was so embarrassed because he was in a six-bedded room with ladies and men in that, and one man, I think. And he said to me, I'm so embarrassed. And I said, like, you know, they're used to this. And I was trying to, you know, make things a bit easier for him. So it was time to go. Like your previous speaker said, it was one hour to visit. And you had to queue up. And, like, you you could call that maybe 40 minutes. But on the time that he, he had the accident in the bed, was he crying? No, the first one was... Um, oh, sorry. And I was okay. With him All right. And Carry on. I called a nurse, and the care assistant came in with him. But I stayed there, and she was—you could see she was annoyed because she had to do this job, you know. So at that stage, they had put him on these, you know, these nappies for the want of a better word, and um, she pulled it off him and uh, pulled it out from behind him, put it back on him. And she was pulling the strap across and the feces was on it. And Same I said, nappy? No, no, the new one. New one, thank you. No, I just got the... Okay. clean up. Okay. She just got it soiled and she was tying it over. And I said to her, excuse me, you're not leaving him in that. I said, take it off. I said, I'll do it. And the nurse said, no, no, we'll, we'll do it. So they quickly did it and put him back into the bed. But the night he was... Then I said... But at least the nurse did... You know, she did. She, did, yeah. did, she well, checked. She checked the care assistant. You no, know, they were putting him back under the clothes with with the feces and the the nappy. Only I pulled him up on it. 
And he was, I said to them then, I said, he should be on a, in a high dependency ward. I said, you don't have the cot sides up because if he comes out of that bed again, he's going to fall again. So they then moved him up opposite the nurse's station where they could see him. And was there, I went in one evening and he was crying inside in the bed because they were about to take him for a scan. And um, when he, they moved him, his bowel moved. And this lady said to him, um, why didn't you tell us you needed to go use the toilet? Now I have to clean up after you. Now, when it's like I was scolding in, him, really, isn't it? Oh, I said to her, humiliating him. And scolding him, yeah, yeah. So I went in and I called the nurse. I said, who's in charge here? And um, they were looking at each other, you know. So um, Martin said to me, don't, don't make a fuss. I was so upset for him. So one nurse came and said, I'm very sorry. And I said, and Martin said, look, it's all right. No, it's done. I said, there's nothing about this. I said, all right. Everything about it, I said, is wrong. And I was so cross. I said, I am, this is not the end of this, I said. I said, this is a disgrace, I said. And um, he was in now as a private patient as well, you know. Mm. But... Um, had he been diagnosed with, with the cancer at this stage? Oh, yes. Okay. And had oh, he started yes. chemo or anything at this stage? He had. He had yeah. He had a radiotherapy, a few sessions of that. He got over that. And to my knowledge, I don't want to be saying this for certain, but I think the plan was that they were going to, when he finished the radiotherapy, he'd get a break for a week and then start the chemo. But they put him from one straight on to the other, if you know, like they stopped one today and then they started the chemo and then they stopped it because of the reaction that he had. Yes. And the plan was that he was going to not be able to be cured but to be treated and he'd be able to come home and if the chemo didn't work there was two other types of treatment that they could give but he never got to that stage anyway. They um, That night they he was in the ward and he was crying and they came in and they, there was a, a lovely care assistant there, a male assistant. Seamus was his name. I shouldn't say his name, sorry. But he was actually very, very kind. So what they had decided was that they'd send him over to Marymount because they do rehabilitation there before he got the fall now and that they'd strengthen him up because he had lost a lot of weight to get him ready for the rest of his treatment, to send him home with a quality of life. Yeah. But then we were called one Saturday morning at about 10 o'clock to come for myself and the three lads to come up. And they told us, this uh, doctor told us very coldly that our dad, that dad had picked up... Um, an infection, and he had 24 hours to live. And I said to him, and what type of infection did he have? I thought it might have been MRSA or something. And he said um, he has um, a blood infection. So I said to him, is it sepsis? He said, it's a blood infection. But I said, is it sepsis? And he said, it is. And like... That's a very serious infection, Neil. I don't know if you know about it or not, but I had it myself a few years ago. 
and I wasn't sick and it took me every bit of strength I had to fight it. So um, they said 24 hours maybe and he was flicking fingers around and said 24, maybe 48. Like we were devastated when we heard it. So he beat the infection. They told us that he was recovering from it and they were hoping, he was hoping, he was so wanted to go to Marymount because he thought that was his, he'd get the, they'd make him strong and he'd come home. So he couldn't go then that Friday because he had an infection and he couldn't go there with an infection. So two weeks after that, they sent him over there to Marymount and that was the best thing that ever happened to him. They were, they are angels, Neil. Angels. Mm. He died. Did you know at that stage you were dealing with end of life care? No, they told us he wasn't. In the COH, he wasn't going for end-of-life care. He was going for rehabilitation. But you see, he's, after the fall, he cracked two bones in his back, down low in his back, so he couldn't walk. So they still sent him for the rehabilitation, but it actually ended up in end-of-care treatment yeah. because he went, you know, he fought and he fought, but they were... So, so fantastic. Yeah. They need they everything about them. The way they spoke to Martin, the way they sat with him, like one nurse said, she said, myself and Martin were having tea and toast at four o'clock this morning. And they left us in and Professor O'Brien looked after him and he said, you know, when he was about 10 days before he died and he had him, made him comfortable, you know, and he said... I'm happy, he said, to see that he's happy and in no pain. And the time he spent up there for for us was a consolation for all he suffered over in the CUH. And he, the nurse above, and they, they were, I said to you, they weren't changing him and that. But the nurse, one of the night nurses, when he went in, said to me on the phone, I used to ring at night, and she said to me, I have never as long as I am nursing, she said, seeing somebody's bum in such a state. She said, it is so bad, we have, we're taking photographs of it. Really? She was criticising the care and the CH yeah. by saying that? She said, it is, she said, it, never, she said, as long as I am nursing, mm. have I ever... <sighs> Okay, I, I do feel I do feel rather uncomfortable about though about you know I'm going to read out a statement in a few minutes from the CUH's general manager okay. yeah. on behalf of all of the staff there, and that statement actually is on behalf of the good the good staff at the CUH, if I can put it that way, you know, of oh, which yes, there are probably an awful lot. Um, how should we be feeling about them as we tell these stories? Like I feel there, I must say. The, any of the Indian nurses that treated Martin were nothing but kind and consoling to him and reassuring to him. Some of the Irish nurses too, but I, I'm ashamed to say this, but they, they were the most caring people that he met in there were the Indian nurses. You see, the CUH said that the programme is unfair. They say it's misleading they say it's uncorroborated and they say it's inaccurate. So what they're saying, well, what they're saying is that the stories over the last few days are 
uncorroborated, which is another way of saying that people aren't, that we shouldn't believe them. But I can tell you, you can believe them. And I would never, I actually broke my wrist about before Martin got sick at all this year. I was out in the garden and I said, please don't bring me up to the CUH. I said, please don't bring me up there. And and were you there when he passed at Marymount? And were the lads with you? We were there all the time with him, all day and all night. And then um, the like the nurse was like, you know, you can stay. Now, Martin was in a coma at this stage and didn't know we were there. But we sat with him all day. We laughed and we cried and we reminisced. And... Um, I suppose we spent more time together that time than we would have. You know, normally we're running in and out and up and down. Yeah. And um, he, she said to us, um, we had been there sitting about, I'd say, six days at that stage and nights. And she said to us, up to yourselves, she said. Now, we only live in Little Island, so we weren't very far away. So she said... Um, it's entirely up to you, she said. Um, one of the nurses said, she said, well, Professor O'Brien said to me, he said he's very at peace now. He has no pain, I guarantee you. He won't have any pain, he said. And he said, when the good Lord is ready, that's when Martin would go. And the nurse said to her, she said, you could go into the bathroom, she said, and come out, and he could be gone. But she said, we can't tell anyone, you know, not to go or to go. She said, but the only bit of advice she said I would give you, she said, would be to go home. You're not far away. We will be sitting with him. Don't worry, he will not be alone. Because she said, when he passes, because of the time you've spent here already, you're going to need your strength for what you need coming after it. So we left him on the morning that he died. We left at 12 and we got a call. He passed at 10 to 3 and the nurse was sitting with him. Mm-hmm. He ah. just stopped breathing. Like, you know, we were there. All he was doing was breathing. I know. But it was nice to look at him in no distress. No pain at peace. And how no, are you coping now? No pain, no distress, no anxiety in his face, nothing. And we were. T- he told Professor O'Brien, said, you know, speak away as if you're o- at home in your own sitting room and talk away, he said. And, and did you, do you recall what your last words to him were, his to you? His last words to me, he, he, th- he thought he was coming home. Yeah. He said he'd be home. He's gone to another home now. He's gone to another home, he is, yeah. How are you coping? Ah, oh, sure. Just trying to get around, you know. It's hard. Well, I think it's very brave of you, I have to say, Margaret, and others are saying likewise, asking me to congratulate you for coming on the air when your husband's passing was so recent. I know, but I am so annoyed with what happened. That's why I got on to you, Neil. I know. Well, it took a lot of courage, and thank you, thank you so much for... For coming on air, and and on behalf of us all, thank you also to Marymount and and to. Oh, thank you for saying that. Thank them. They were 
angels. Okay. Mind yourself, yeah. Margaret, to you and your sons, I believe. Is it three yes, sons you three have? Sons, yeah. Okay, they'll mind you. They'll mind they you. Thanks, Thank Margaret. You need. Thank this you statement came in this morning from the CUH General Manager, Dr. Jared O'Callaghan. Now, on Monday, we asked them to contribute to the program, but I got a three liner then, just a three line statement. It's a lot longer now. Uh, we also then went back this morning and asked the PR company that handles the statements for the CUH whether or not uh, Dr. O'Callaghan would prefer to come on air and to discuss it one to one. And they have come back and said no, uh, that he has declined that. But he does expect the statement to be read out in full. So here it is. Uh, I wish to strenuously object to the contents of recent programs on Red FM regarding the geriatric service at Cork University Hospital. The geriatric service provided at CUH is the highest calibre, is provided by extraordinary staff and led by exceptional people. Your recent programs have been extremely unfair and extremely misleading. Whilst I'm sure the people who spoke on the programs were well-meaning, their observations are uncorroborated and in many cases inaccurate. Thousands of people who pass through the geriatric service and the CUH each year are extremely happy with the service provided. Their voices or views have not been heard on the program. Uh, the people who attend the geriatric service at CUH are generally generally complex cases with many comorbidities who require the support of experienced and highly trained staff. Many of these patients also display challenging behavior that can often be extremely difficult to manage. For this reason, the staff in the geriatric service are of the highest caliber. As a result of your programs, staff have been verbally abused by visitors and family members. This type of unbalanced coverage may also result in some elderly people who are seriously ill, not attending the hospital and a risk and risk a deterioration of their health. The programs on Red FM in recent days have caused extreme upset to staff across all disciplines in the hospital. These are people who have put their own health at risk by looking after our families during the current COVID pandemic. They deserve, they are deserving of more respect. Uh, Dr. Jared O'Callaghan, Chief Executive Officer, Cork University Hospital, issued on behalf of him by their PR company. Now, um, there are many issues within that statement that I would like to talk to Dr. O'Callaghan about. In fact, there are parts of it that I would challenge, and there are parts of it also that I could also claim about that statement that are uncorroborated. Um, I mean, to say, um, without any evidence to show, that staff have been verbally abused by visitors and family members, that in itself is uncorroborated when it reaches my desk. But there are many aspects to that that I would take uh, issue with and uh, that I would challenge and questions that I would like to put. I mean, are the CUH suggesting that none of these stories should be aired? And that would be one of the questions. Are they not in a position to talk about the cleanliness even within the hospital setting? I mean, is, would it not be a fair question to ask, say, for instance, the general manager, on how many occasions he would have had unannounced visits himself into wards um, and many other questions like that. We'll pick it up in the morning, but uh, that aspect of this will not happen. There won't be a conversation uh, with the, the general manager. There were, I've had, had many in the past actually with general managers of the CUH with Tony McNamara down through the years. Uh, in fact, he was always on the end of a phone. Have a good day. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.